Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. You can find me on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. Spelling G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y. Enjoy the show. On episode 17 of the Galen Trombley Show, I have my friend Craig DeBoos on. Craig is the Quality Assurance manager at Norse Titanium. Uh, we go in, we talk a lot about fatherhood. Uh, we talk about our different companies and, and kind of the role of brand and attitude and, and trying to run a team and, and finding your why. Uh, we also talk about tra- travel hacks, a little bit of uh, how we got into rugby and a few other fun um, Australianisms that come out of, of the, the, uh, the land down under. So we hope you enjoy episode 17 of the Galen Trombley Show. Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Welcome to episode 17 of the Galen Trombley Show. Uh, my guest today is a friend of mine that I've met over the last couple years, and we actually got coffee the, uh, probably two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and we were kind of, I wish we actually had a mic at that time, which, but instead I invited him a couple weeks later to continue on the conversation here live. So I have my good friend Craig DeBoos with me, um, straight down under, uh, straight from down under, but we're going to allow Craig to kind of tell you a little bit about his background how he came to be in Plattsburgh, and you know, then we'll, we'll dive deep in some, uh, I think, conversation that me and him will nerd out about. So, Craig, welcome to uh, the show. Thanks, Galen. And uh, for the listeners who don't know you, or who do know you but want a little bit more information, uh, give, give us the, the kind of the, uh, the background. How did, how did Craig DeBoos end up in uh, the North Country? Well, the background is, I guess. I mean, obviously, when I open my mouth, it's the first thing that everybody hears. Um, the accent's uh, from the South, and when I mean the South, I mean the way, way South. Um, so real, Scott Brightwell, the real self. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah, shout out Scott, Scott Brightwell from minute one. Um, no, so I, I was born in Australia. Uh, my father is Australian. Um, my mother is British. Um, they met in the late 60s in Manchester in England when my father was doing a PhD. Uh, and then he married her and uh, dragged her all the way out to the other side of the world, uh, to Australia, which at the time was, was quite a big thing. But um, So I was born there, but through dad's work, I'd I'd lived in a multitude of places. So I'd lived in Germany, I'd lived in England, I'd lived uh, all over the place. Um, When I was 17, straight out of high school, I joined the Australian Navy and I was with them for almost 20 years. Um, There's an explanation for why it isn't 20 years because uh, Americans tend to sometimes uh, ask me that question straight up. But uh, during that time, I was in New York and through friends of a friend's, I met a girl who was working there, living in Spanish Harlem and um, for some bizarre reason, took a liking to a drunken sailor for reasons past understanding. (laughs) And, uh, And we started doing the long distance thing for a while, but then I was spending all my leave in New York. I was, I was traveling out there, you know, every few months uh, as best I could and, um, I decided that uh, it was worth doing for the rest of my life and asked her to marry me. So in 2003, we got married and I moved, she mo- again moved to Australia to be with me. And again, we lived in multiple places, multiple countries. Um, we have three boys, all born in different countries, if you can believe that. And in, at the end of my time, so I'd, I'd done 19 years and it was, I was ready looking at the next rank and looking at uh, what was ahead of me. 
and decided that uh, I liked an engineer. I liked doing engineering. I liked being out down in the weeds and doing things. And in the face of uh, high-level management jobs, I, I figured it was time for something new. Karen decided that she wanted to move to be a little bit closer to her parents. Plattsburgh, New York is where her, her parents had settled. Uh, and so we came out here expecting this to be a jumping off point to somewhere else in the US while I waited my green card. Um, but oddly enough, uh, I got my green card and two weeks later I had a job in Plattsburgh um, and it was a job that I'd been, uh, you know, it was a, as a quality management job at Platco down on White Street. Um, and I had the opportunity to work there for quite an incredible guy, a guy named Doug Crozier, who was the CEO there, which kept me there four and a half years. And again, at the end of that time, just as when you're looking for, for the next thing, I then got offered a job at North Titanium, which has sort of kept me around the area. But um, sometimes you don't quite know what's coming next. Uh, I certainly didn't. If, you, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, if I'd said uh, upstate New York, Canadian border, three kids, wife, house, the full bit, I probably would have laughed at you quite hard. <laughs> Um, but sometimes life takes you to strange places and you kind of have to roll with it. It sounds um, like a natural progression from the, was, uh, when you were down under, was that like sandy beaches kind of thing? Or, I mean, I don't know, again, I'm, I'm very unknowledgeable about anything Australia besides the accent and probably kangaroos, <laughs> which I don't even know if that's how true half of that is, but. There's, there's always some element of truth to the stereotypes. So for example, uh, I used to eat a lot of kangaroo steak. Um, it was half the cost of beef. Was it good? Yeah, it's great. It's, yeah. it's a lot like venison. It's a very rich yeah. meat, very lean meat. So a lot of the, the CrossFitters really like it um, because it's a really sort of lean, high-protein meat. Um, you know, lots of... I grew up with spiders and sharks and snakes and those kinds of things. I'm petrified of spiders. Um, so a lot of the stereotypes exist. Um, most of Australia lives on the East Coast. Uh, so there's 30 million people, I think, in Australia. Um, the vast majority live down the East Coast, somewhere, somewhere near the beaches. And the way I guess I'd describe it is you've got the East Coast a bit like the US. And then imagine the South Australian capital city, Adelaide, would be the equivalent of St. Louis. And then Perth, the West Coast city, is LA. But between effectively St. Louis and LA, there's probably about 20,000 people. So it's the flyover it's states. wide but open space. Were you the one that told me that? That Australia is very similar to the US? In or terms no, of... I've heard that before. Was it from you? Uh, quite possibly. But, I mean, it's literally desert and just... Well, you had talked about, like, the East Coast being, like, the East Coast of the U.S. There's a lot of big cities. Yeah, Kind yeah. of down. And then Los Angeles. And I think you, it had to be you because I, I don't know how many people were talking <laughs> about the geography of Australia besides yourself. Um, so when you were growing up in Australia, um, how long were you there till? You said so, you moved around a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I lived in Germany from age two to age four, I think. England from 9 to 12 and every time we just went back to the same location my father's job was always the same but he always got uh, jobs in other countries so for example when I joined the military then he moved to Italy with my mother and my brother who's 10 years younger than me um, so they'd always moved around and then once I got into the military then I moved a lot as well and most of that was moving various cities in Australia so Canberra uh, Sydney Melbourne um, places you know, people have probably never heard of, but um, but it was always to a different military base or a different setting or something like that. I they sent me to the UK for a year to do a master's um, as part of my military training, um, and then of course you know lots of other visits to to various countries over over the course of that time, but always coming back to those those sort of same major cities wherever they happen to be in Australia. Um, the way I like to describe it is, um, I mean, Sydney is is the thing that everybody sees first in terms of city. They see the Harvard Bridge, they see the Opera House, they see that particular skyline, and it's a very recognisable skyline. And there is a lot in Sydney to get done, but it, it doesn't necessarily recognise what's most amazing about Australia. 
And if you go to somewhere like the Barrier Reef, or you go to the red center of Australia and you see the wildlife and you see these wide open spaces and you see a wide open space that is so majestic and different to anything else you might see in the world. So it's like going to, um, you know, the Grand Canyon or Utah or something. It's something that's completely different from any other city. I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, a city is a city and there's cool things about it and there's a different culture and a different vibe. I mean, you go to Amsterdam, you go to London, you go to Paris, there's a different vibe in every city. But at the same time, uh, a city is largely kind of the same construct wherever you go in the world. Whereas the, the wildlife and the nature that you can get in, um, you know, in whatever country you go to is, is often the thing that makes it most, most different. And, and particularly when you're talking about Australia, that is most different. So, you know, people talk about, um, you know, snakes and spiders and, and sharks and things like that. And, and it's always the stereotype that comes up, but it's not the thing that's, that's most amazing. I mean, sometimes the things that are most amazing are the things Australians take for granted. So in my, at my golf course, there were so many kangaroos on the course, you had to have special rules for when you hit a, inevitably hit a golf ball into a kangaroo and couldn't get it back. Um, and, and things like that, that people just don't, you, you take it so much for granted because it's what you see. I mean, I grew up 15 minutes from Bells Beach. So that was the environment we grew up in. And, and you, I think you do take it a lot for granted until you start to develop friends from other places who start talking about those kinds of locations and wanting to visit there. And that's when you start to recognize how amazing some a place like that is and how special it was for me growing up well i think that's um i think it's similar up here in the sense that we have the adirondacks which are some of the most beautiful mountain ranges in the world someone like me complains when i have to drive through them to go down to albany and Mm. i'm not you know i'm not a huge hiker but um they're beautiful i love the but i don't think we realize that people come up to seek that out and like for us it's just like oh those things like you know what i mean but i've lived here granted 30 years so like to me this is all I've really ever known. Oh, I don't well, know if that's the same or, or different or... It's it's exactly true. I mean, the first... Because obviously so I moved must here have been a little bit di- different to you. Depending where you lived, obviously Germany probably had some mountains, but... I'd seen snow and I'd seen mountains before. Um, I know a lot of my friends growing up hadn't. I mean, even in Canberra, which is... It's the capital city, but it's a fairly cold place by, by Canberra. Australia. Canberra, Australia. So it's like the, the... What is it? Canberra? Canberra, it's the it's the Washington DC of Australia. It's halfway between Sydney and Melbourne. It's where, but that's the actual capital. Yeah, that's where the the, the oh. federal capital is. Oh, okay. Um, so, I'd i lived there. It's considered a very cold city, but in the winter it might get down into the twenties, but only on a clear night. And I think it had snowed like once in thirty years. I mean, it snows up in the mountains occasionally. Yeah. Um, but I, I knew people in Australia who'd never seen snow, and so to come out here and to recognise instead of just like hot and dry or, or wet and cold. It was now four distinct seasons and the winter is just so spectacular up here in terms of the mountains, in terms of the ice. And, and the first time somebody said, oh, let's go for a walk out on the ice out to Valcor Island. I'm like, are you people nuts? Like, how do you even know? So all of these kinds of um, experiences or, or being out with uh, just seeing that kind of outdoor environment that I'd never been a part of before and seeing what a country can be like just in the dead of winter. And when the woods are quiet and the snow or you can't hear anything or in that in the middle of that blizzard when all of the sound goes out of the world and it's nothing but white and it's things like you've never oh so i'm sitting there like a a kid in a candy store looking at this kind of stuff going this is just amazing and people are looking at me like i've got two heads so you're talking about the 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 seasons or you're talking about winter itself all of it i mean winter was the most spectacular because it was so different from anything else i'd seen but i mean you understand why people drive six hours to go leaf peeping up here in the fall i mean it's it's beautiful just incredible and it changes every day and you see the just the way the view of the mountain changes 
or the view of, of something outside your back door. I mean, it's, it's quite incredible. I, I, I've gotten more appreciative as I've gotten older because I've, I've realized like how nice it is. And, you know, I, I drive around a lot and I see different sites and I know the area much better than I ever had as a child growing up. So mm-hmm. like to me, there's a lot of cool little areas where like even just going down random roads, I'm like, this view is going to be incredible coming up over this hill or whatever. And there's a lot of little nuances within the, you know, of areas that you can see. But I, from a, a winter standpoint though, I'm a, I'm very much like get to January and then I, I don't want to see snow. I don't want to see ice. I want it to go right into <laughs> April. But I went um, this past week. I was talking to uh, Jordy earlier about it. She's a big skier. It's the first time I've gone skiing in two years, but mm-hmm. I love skiing. So to me, I'm like, I, I've been saying this and I got to just pull the trigger and do it. But I'm talking about like, just like getting a pass, getting some skis and mm-hmm. trying to go throughout the winter, which I, I have a blast skiing. So that would that would probably get me through the months not as as, as uh, drastic as just being like snowed in all the time where, you know, I just don't really feel like going outside. I mean, obviously you go outside, but I'm not. I'm not really putting myself out in the elements because I'm a I'm, I'm a moderate kind of climate guy. <laughs> Same thing when the heat heat humidity level gets like 100 and uh, the heat gets above probably 80, then I'm like I'm staying inside kind of guy. Sure. So. No. Look, I, I, and I fully understand that. I mean, I'll complain about winter as much as anybody else, especially when I'm planning my driveway for like the seventh time this year yeah. and chipping away at the ice and trying to clear the gutters and all of those all of those things that go with you know home ownership and living up here in the winter. But at the same time. Um, I think once you get when you get out and you sort of experience the environment, and again that that doesn't matter where you are. I mean, you go to New York City and you experience that environment. Being able to immerse yourself in what that gives you, um, that's that's what making it makes anywhere special. Um, Is this the least populated place you've ever lived? <clears throat> Ooh, that's a good question. When I first, let me get this right. So I I actually grew up. My dad owned a sheep farm outside the city. Oh, a what farm? A, a sheep farm. Oh. I- <laughs> Um, if anybody else was wondering, a sheep farm, not, <laughs> not a ship farm. But <laughs> so you know, it was, it was acres. It could go either way on that one, so I didn't know which way the story would go. No, I mean acres outside, and I, I remember the school had it was like kindergarten to sixth grade, and had like fourteen kids and two teachers or something like that. It was a really okay. small town. Now, admittedly, I ended up my mother taught music at um, a private school in the city, so we ended up going into the city every day to go to this school. Um, so. But it gives you an idea of the, the town I grew up in. My mother played uh, organ at the local church. And, um, you know, I, I made money just running around getting drinks for shearers at, uh, on, uh, on farms and, and whatever else it happened to be. I mean, during shearing season or something like that. But and I can't remember what age I was when we eventually moved back into the city. Uh, but, I mean, that was, that was certainly a very deep populated area. But again, like, you know, Australia, it's just miles and miles between cities. Um, you know, we, you talk about the, the two biggest city centers, uh, as, as like, uh, Canberra and Melbourne or something like that. And that's still a nine hour drive apart. You know, Melbourne to Sydney is 12 hours or something like that. So, so it's very width wise. Do you think it's similar to the U S uh, it's, it's Australia is roughly the same size as the continental U S okay. in terms of size. It's okay. just barely any people compared to the yeah. u.s and and all of those states like you know all of the flyover states as they call them that, that's your um, outback right yeah they're still quite populated over here I and mean, there's still lots of cities and people and places mm-hmm. you know like that that section in the middle in australia is nothing because who wants to live in a dry desert with 120 degree heat every day um so again very different environment but uh but when it comes down to it um as you say i mean you immerse yourself in whatever what what, what the what the area offers you or what the city offers you or the, or the place offers you and uh and i think that was always that was always the part of the conversation i mean you go to australia there's so much to see and do but 
that's true of anywhere. Was uh, did you surf? I did. Um, I don't think you can grow up in that area and not surf. Yeah. Um, you know, water sports were always a big thing. So I, I used to sail a lot as well. Um, I was uh, junior ROTC for a long time. Okay. And the, the, the unit that was closest to mine happened to be a Navy unit, which is probably where my interest got started. But every week I'd be out sailing on the water and I did some ocean racing and, and got my um, uh, sailing licenses, all you know, the international yachting licenses all the way up to inshore skippers, something or other. Um, so, I mean, I sailed as, for as long as I could remember and, and even right through my Navy time, I did a lot of sailing as well, but unfortunately it's, uh, it's a fairly expensive sport. So, um, cause you gotta have, I mean, you're on rig and everything else. Yeah, yeah, in. exactly. So, um, you know, once it's interesting, I mean, I was, I can't remember now. I, I was, I was 29 when my first son was born. Um, but it changes your outlook and your perspective on what, or your priorities, even the choices that you make, I guess. Um, so sailing was a passion of mine, you know, for a long, long time. And, and I, I do miss it in a way, but at the same time, um, I have other things to focus on now, I suppose. And, and I always occasionally, you know, gaze longingly during the summer at uh, the yachts raising up and down Lake Champlain and wondering if, uh, if it's something I can get back into. But, uh, but you know, that was uh, growing up in Australia, water was always, water is always a big thing wherever you are. Cause most of, as I said, most of the cities are on the coast. So you take swimming lessons mandatory in school you have to um i i don't know an australian kid for example who couldn't swim um or hadn't taken swimming lessons or or things like that i mean um i remember school swimming sports everybody had to enter at least one race you didn't have a choice um so it was just something we grew up with and and being in the surf and and being around the beach it was just something that was um everybody did it so you caught up with your friends and it'd be down at a coffee shop on the beach or um, you know, breakfast at a restaurant overlooking the beach or something stupid like that. I mean, there was, there's so much about the water that, that speaks to Australia to me. Um, and so much of my experiences in Australia are somehow tied to that. Have you been, I mean, how often do you go back? To be honest, um, that was another thing. I mean, I haven't been back since I left in 2012. Oh, well. And the reason was, is I, I called up my dad the first year and said, uh, I've got some vacation time coming. Um, we'll come home and, and all get together. And his response was, um, you've been home. Why would you come back? Let's go somewhere else. So um, we try and every, every year or every couple of years, we try and get together somewhere in the world. Um, so a couple of years ago, it was India at my brother's wedding because he married a, a girl from India. Oh, cool. um, uh, last year it was Mexico. Um, I think we're trying, you know, I think my sister, um, my wife and, uh, and my brother's wife are all sort of talking about where the next trip will be, but it's somewhere in the world that we haven't all experienced. That's um, cool. and again, my family spreads. So my sister is, uh, in Townsville in Northern Australia. My brother is in Melbourne in Southern Australia. So that's like Florida and New York. Okay. My parents live in China nine months a year. Um, in China. Yeah. Okay. There's a whole nother story behind that, but, uh, and then we live out here. So we're kind of spread all over the place. Um, so family of five, family of five. Yeah. Um, okay. So mum and dad, dad is, uh, a wool scientist. So he's worked in wool, uh, wool research his entire life. In uh, which kind? Wool. So like, literally wool off the sheep's back. Really? So he's a sheep guy. Yeah. Through. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay. So he worked for the, the government research organization in Australia and looked at wool finishing and, so he, he kind of looked at, uh, if you, if you have a bolt of fabric, how do you test it so that when it becomes a suit, you know, it's going to hang perfectly and the seams will look good and everything else. Um, and when he finished or he retired the first time and lasted three months and then decided he wanted to go back to work, um, and got a new job with uh, the Walmart company and Australian wool innovation. 
but that led to a lot of work with the uh, the wool houses out of China. Um, and now he not only does all of that work, but he also teaches at the university at Yantao there, not far from Beijing. And okay. mom goes up and teaches uh, English as a second language effectively, but helps uh, academics write papers and does a lot of editing and publishing and runs her own business effectively in, in that sort of environment. Um, my mother uh, started out, I mean, she's an amazing violinist um, and played violin her entire life, went to music college, but also did social work and sociology um, She's got a, a master's of arts, a master's in literature. She's, she's an incredibly uh, diverse woman um, from, from that background. And as a result, between the pair of them, they produced some uh, quite diverse kids as well. So my sister is a, um, an ER specialist, um, does pediatrics and, and runs the ER department at Townsville-based hospital. Um, my brother is a water treatment um, and hydroelectric engineer type. So he looks specifically at... Uh, you know, all of the stuff that goes around big city water and how you treat that, that's, mm-hmm. that's what my brother does. Um, and then there's me. Um, and I, when I married my wife, uh, I'm the geekiest of engineers that you can possibly get. Um, I started out in aerospace and looked at aircraft design and everything else. My uh, wife is an incredibly smart and talented woman. Um, she has degrees in art history and English literature and is the deputy director over at the Strand Center for the Arts. Okay, cool. And has devoted pretty much her entire life to the nonprofit field. Um, and again, an incredible woman who balances me out beautifully. I, I don't think my life would be anywhere close to what it is without her. Uh, and I, I say that with a smile on my face, but at the same time, I always recognize the first four weeks that I spent in New York. Um, you know, I spent two weeks doing all of the tourist stuff, you know, the Empire State Building mm-hmm. and, uh, and Rockefeller, Rockefeller, Rockefeller Center and all those kinds of places. And then had her show me what New York was to her. And she took me around to all of the famous galleries, the Met and the MoMA and um, the Guggenheim and all those kinds of places. She took me out for, um, you know, chili burritos from La Posada's on 28th Street, the size of your head, and, and got me to experience a different side of the arts and music and food and everything culture of New York that I never would have experienced had I not met her. I probably would have just done the tourist thing and left and mm-hmm. never really um, gotten, to, gotten to know New York the way I do. And ever since then, right through our married life, wherever we end up in a city, we always find different aspects of the city that fascinate us. And that's always, you know, so I'll go to a science museum and drag her along and, and she'll watch me get all geeked out over that. We went to uh, Florida and I took it at Cape Canaveral and, and I, again, I geeked out for a day over that and she laughed at me the whole time. But at the same time, then uh, finding ways that she can give me a, a breadth of experience that I never would have had otherwise be it art or be it music or be it um, uh, a different perspective on life. I mean, sorry, I know you don't talk politics on this show, for example, but... Uh, but don't again, worry, if it gets too bad, I'll... I'll... No, no, but again, getting, getting the perspective of someone who, who grew up in a very different environment with a, a very different set of challenges and a very different set of, um, you know, perspectives, again, uh, that balance is, uh, is incredible for me just to make me somebody more than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I forgot where I was going with this, but but an incredibly diverse background in terms of our family and, and the family I've married into as well. I, I got again, very lucky with my in-laws in that they're an incredibly gifted group of people. So and they're from originally up here. Um, my parents-in-law immigrated to the U S from the Philippines. Um, oh, wow. okay. my father-in-law is a doctor, um, and had gone through a number of different practices, um, before finally settling, uh, Dr. Dispo. Um, he is a, a pain management, management specialist, uh, runs a practice at CVPH. 
Um, my mother-in-law runs the office for him, uh, along with my brother-in-law, who does uh, a lot of the, uh, the tech management and everything else that goes along with the office. And that's an incredible amount of, uh, incredible body of work that goes with that, just in terms of um, upkeep of the management of all of the patients that go in and out of there, uh, especially when you're dealing with um, sort of the Schedule 1 narcotics that, that go with pain management. Um, and again, my sister-in-law is, uh, works at the Apollo Theatre uh, as one of the, uh, the, the theatre managers down there. Um, so an incredible background of uh, an incredible group of people that became my family when I moved to the US as well. Uh, and I was very lucky that they, uh, they took me in and made me a part of the family in the way they did. So we, even, uh, we lived with my parents-in-law for uh, the best part of a year before we bought a house. Um, and again, I mean, it's, I, I can never speak highly enough of them uh, as a family. They are an incredibly tight-knit bunch, and I am a very lucky man to be a part of that. So, so um, I think you had mentioned you have three boys, right? Uh-huh. How, how's that? <laughs> the, reason, the reason I ask is I have one on the – I don't know, boy or girl, before people freak out and start asking. I do not know the gender, but we have a son now and a future child coming in May. So I'm just – I've, I've heard – What's your, I, I might have asked you this before, but obviously we've experienced one or have for a little over a year. What is two like and then what is three like? Because I've, I've got mixed reactions on both. Varying perspective. Um, so Dante, my oldest, is now 12. He was born in the UK when I was over there doing a master's. Actually, can you tell me your kids' names again? Because okay. this is follow a theme. <laughs> now, now, now it's kind of coming full circle. So Dante is 12. Yep. Nathaniel is 11. Oh, okay. Wait, I know. I know the youngest one then. And then Raphael is four. Now, um, now can I take a stab at? I'm assuming, painter, writer, painter. Am I right or no? Yeah, close enough. Uh, so Dante Alighieri, who wrote uh, the Divine Comedy or the Inferno, as most people know it. I got, I got the book over there. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, yep. Nathaniel Hawthorne was the second. Yep. Uh, very famous American writer. Uh, and Raphael after the painter, sculptor. So it's good. I, I got all, four, I got all three. I'm, se- I'm semi-art. I actually, uh, one of the courses I never took in college, but I always wanted to, was art history. I really did like art. I'm, I had a, I, I like art. I, I haven't practiced art. I don't really have a background in it. Mm-hmm. It was always, I had a pretty good hand you know, hand-eye coordination. I always had a really good hand and I always thought I was pretty good at art, but I never pursued it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do like it. And now meeting a few, um, I, I know a few people now that have, have pretty good artistic abilities and seeing what they do and kind of talking. I've had a couple of them on the podcast, but mm. um, I've, I've, I, I kind of wish I did. I, part of me wants to just get a sketchbook and just start drawing again and stuff. But um, but that I did know the three the three people. Well, I think so. there's something to it. I, I, I think the way my uh, wife used the world, um, for example, when I, I went to work in the south of France for a while with, uh, with Eurocopter and, uh, and seeing the area where Cezanne and Van Gogh and, and all of those people had done their work, had I not had the, the semblance of education that, that Karen was able to offer me for, before I left, um, it would have changed your perspective because you look at the mountain in the background of Aix-en-Provence and you've seen it in a thousand different paintings, mm-hmm. but you don't recognize it for what it is unless you've actually like taken the time to understand it. Um, I, I am, I am by no means uh, creative when it comes to art. I mean, I love music. Um, I love art in general now that I know a bit more about it, but, um, but it was never, you know, one of those passions I had growing up. I mean, music was certainly there from minute one because of my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, but from an art perspective, that, that just opened up a whole new world. So I think any time that you can, I mean, life is about knowledge, isn't it? It's about gaining knowledge. It's about learning new things. It's about trying to become more than you are. 
So I think if you can, uh, I mean, for me, art was something I never knew about. I, I just didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even to these days, like she'll take me to a, a, a modern art exhibit and I'll be sitting there going, it's, it's seven shades of white on a canvas or it's a sofa. But when you understand the history or the background of the movement and why it was so important, you understand why a candle soup can suddenly mm-hmm. becomes art or Jackson Pollock with, with sprayed paint on a, on a canvas. You understand why that becomes important and then all of a sudden everything opens up. So I think you're right. I think if, if you can take, I mean, you start to understand why they make engineers take um, arts courses as part of their degree, mm-hmm. just to give them a flavor in the background. And it's interesting how that creativity, that, um, you know, that, uh, that un, unfixed mind, I suppose, is so useful in so many different things. And the more I've experienced an engineering environment, the more you recognize how much creativity comes into that. So I think it's, um, I think it's always valuable. I mean, God, if you, if you can get away and do a, a fine arts course, why the hell not? I, I, I know I should. There's a few, I, it's actually kind of funny. I'm, I'm on a college, we mentioned about this before. I'm on a college panel tomorrow night at Plattsburgh, mm-hmm. uh, which I think will be fun. It'll be kind of good to give our perspective to, to future graduates and kind of what to expect going into the kind of the next step of life. But there are like people say they don't regret stuff. Like I don't regret like 99% of things in life, but there are a few things I'm like, I really wish I would have took that or did that. Or like in, in high school, maybe took some more kind of, um, you know, woodworking or industrial arts types classes, um, or trade classes. I would have, I wish I would have actually not gone to college and went for trades. Sure. And, but part of it, one of my main things was I would have liked to have taken art history. I would have also liked to have taken an astrology class mm-hmm. or astronomy, astronomy. I was yep, going to yeah. up astronomy. I like, I like skies and stars. Yeah, absolutely. And stuff. So those, those are things I, I, I wish I would have took the time, but as a 18, 19, 20 year old, I, my, I was more focused on getting the heck out of there than maybe taking an extra semester to, to, to take a couple courses that I probably otherwise would never get the chance to take again. But that's, but it's interesting, isn't it? Like, um, it, this brings us full circle. Actually, you asked me about my kids. Um, you know, I, I, for, a long, for the longest time there, I had so many regrets about things that I'd done, choices I'd made, ways I'd behaved, all of those kinds of things. And, you know, when you start talking about things that you hadn't done, one of the, uh, the most amazing things about kids is watching them develop their interests. Mm-hmm. And as a parent, um, I think one of the most enjoyable things is actually giving them a platform that, for those interests and the opportunity to explore in ways that, um, not that I didn't have, because my parents were amazing about that but they might not have had otherwise. So um, it's not necessarily like you're trying to push them into your interests because again, that's not the point. It's, it's how many different things can you explore and in how many different ways uh, with your kids. So maybe they do find that, that flowering passion. So, you know, you, you take them star, stargazing one night or you take mm-hmm. them camping or you take them um, to Cape Canaveral or to a Broadway show or to an art museum just to give them an opportunity to explore all of those ideas in a safe space mm-hmm. to say, you know, what might I like to do one day? I mean, cause if you're, if you just narrowly trapped down a, you have to do this. I mean, it wasn't, I, th- I think my parents never forced me into it, but I think I forced myself into a little bit in that I had this idea about what my life was supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. And you very, very quickly work out that um, it's impossible to predict. I mean, it never survives, you know, year one, let alone day one or minute one. And, you know, the, you know, it's a dumb way to say it, but the beauty of life is, is those decisions and and what they get you to. And so while I may still have all of those regrets about, you know, things I'd done in the past, um, I get the fact that I'm here now and this is what it's brought me to. And hopefully 
um, you know, hopefully that's a good thing. Um, uh, you'll probably hear me mention this guy uh, a few times during the podcast because he had such an influence on me. Um, Doug Crozier was the CEO at, okay, uh, Placo. at Placo. Uh, an amazing guy and a guy with a, just a, an incredible mind for knowledge. Um, he unfortunately passed away almost a year ago today. Um, but he always talked about, um, you know, talked about ideas and knowledge. And um, he, his phrase was uh, love, laugh and leave a legacy. And I figure, you know, if you can break it down to something that simple, maybe you can just leave a little bit of a legacy, even if it's only in the opportunity that you gave your kids to, um, to explore their passions, to explore their ideas, to explore something that's going to make them happy. Is that me, is it? Not me. So we're getting some buzzing over this, but... Was that you? Nope. No. Carry um, on. <laughs> so, um, one, Dante was born in the UK. So we just made the move over to the UK. I was about to do my master's and Karen almost immediately found out she was pregnant. Um, so he was born in the UK. Then we came back and 15 months later, Nathaniel was born. Those two have been Irish twins their entire lives. They play together. They hang out together. They do all those, all, all kinds of things together. Both um, born in, oh, he, different. So he was born in Australia. Okay. Um, in Raphael. And we were, well, we were done at two. And then uh, the fates decided that uh, that wasn't quite true. And, uh, and Raphael came along. There's an there's a eight-year gap between Dante and, and Raphael. And he's U.S. He, he was born in the U.S. Okay. Um, so, again, it's, it's one of those things like uh, it's exhausting. It's frustrating. It's incredibly difficult. And having two is like four times the work of one because we've heard yeah um all of a sudden and and the more you have the 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 more difficult it is to focus and whatever age that is you need to provide your kids with attention uh certainly not necessarily overbearing attention but you need to provide again you know provide them with whatever they need to to get ahead in life Mm -hmm. um but by the time there's three of them there's only two of you then you know you've got to kind of start making choices um and and trying to fit everything in so whether it's fitting in uh, you know, a science course and a dance class and a play date and, and everything else that goes along with that. Um, you know, it, it, it starts to, it starts to change your priorities. It starts to change your focus. Um, and, and some of the fun is about working out how the heck you're going to do it all. Oh, I, th- um, I think we had this conversation before I, I, uh, in, in regards to, we're going to be about 17 months apart. Yep. So, but when you talked about priorities, I mean, we talked about this the other day. Um, we bas- basically went from a position where I could do anything I wanted all day long. Mm-hmm. I had, I mean, obviously, you know, me and Gina were, were pretty independent. You know, we, we weren't like tied at the hip. We, I mean, we, we did stuff, but we were also, we also did our alone time. We had our, so, but like, so besides like the time we spent together, it was pretty much work and we could play and do whatever we wanted, meaning like, we talked about going to the gym and we talked about going like on trips or going out or going, you know, different things that totally have stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of joked, uh, we're doing the, uh, the open right now. And sure. uh, I forgot who I was talking to the other day and uh, they go something about the open. And they said, my, I've done it now for seven years. Mm-hmm. This is the first year that I've gone to the open where my goal for the open is to just do five of all five workouts. Like that is my only goal. I could care yep. less what my score is. And uh, there, there's 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 a couple things to that. One, it's very relieving knowing that 
I don't really have to push myself that hard, meaning I'm not, I'm going to try, but if it hurts a little bit, we're okay, because I just tallied the box today, and I've done that, I did that, and pretty much workout one and two, and then, but part of the, the idea is that that is completely taken, when you talk about priorities, now one, I don't want to, I'm, I'm trying to find the balance there where I'm not skipping, which is basically 4.45 a.m. wake-up calls mm-hmm. to go to, but you got to do what you got to do, um, so that that has been my basically swing in priorities, and then sure. also we've we've talked about, um, you know, I used to like playing golf. Kind of, I think with you was sailing. You're yep. looking at the sailors. I drive by the golf course and be like, I remember the days where I could just go out and play 18 whenever I wanted, and now I play a couple times a year, and sure. usually it's sneaking out for nine holes like on a Wednesday morning or something with a couple buddies. So really, the priorities have completely shifted to work to provide for your family, and mm-hmm. then. The second part of it being spending the time with your family. So that's basically my, the only two things I have really going on in life. Now, luckily for me, we're very good about both family slash business are both social for me. So I get to see people. So sure, it's, sure. So I do get to kind of merge it. But usually I'm, I'm seeing people in a work setting or I'm seeing people in like a family setting. Mm-hmm. So I very rarely have the moment where I'm just going to go out and see you other, otherwise. So it's got to kind of really fit in. But that's like a conscious decision we've kind of made on stuff and i know it's only going to get um the the time management factor is going to be just tested more and more as the years go on and they get busier and more kids and yeah. sports and and yeah. art and friend, friend, uh going to play with friends and, and carpooling and that kind of or, uh, well, or chauffeuring i should say yeah it, and it does get busier um and it was it was one of those things like uh I think you'd mentioned it when we were talking over coffee was, um, you know, everybody's serene above the water. Everybody's yes. going a million duck, miles an hour. The duck, the, 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 duck the duck analogy, which is great. And I remember reading, uh, there's a book called the achievement habit, which was one of the, one of the books that Doug had first given to me. Um, when we were talking about, you know, business and improvement and change and a few other things. And I always remember chapter two was entitled reasons of bullshit. And that was the one that just leapt out at me as like, that was, that was like this life changing moment where it, you sit there and you look at everything and everything in life is a choice. Now I'm 40 pounds overweight. I get that. Um, <laughs> you're, you're, yeah, I don't think you're 40 pounds. Well, it, it, yeah. It, it's, it's a go with the analogy. Yeah, for a second, okay, right? that's fine. So, so, but, um, and, and yes, I know I could give you the reasons, you know, I don't have time to go to the gym. I'm working too hard. I don't get enough sleep. I got to run my kids around all these kinds of things. But at the end of the day, it's a choice. I have chosen to prioritize, you know, work and family at the moment over me going to the gym. And this is the result, but it's still a choice. Mm-hmm. Now you get better at making those choices. You get a, get better at, at sucking what every every last thing you can out of every little event. So, you know, I relish those nights when I can just sit on the couch, snuggle up with my wife, and watch a movie. Mm-hmm. Guaranteed, we'll probably be asleep twenty minutes into it. <laughs> yeah. But hey, yeah. I, you know, I love those moments. Mm-hmm. Um, or being able to say, um, "Hey, we're just going to go on a bike ride." just have a great time in the morning or, you know, catching up with the right group of friends to know that I can play golf at 6am on a Sunday morning so that I'll get out there and have an amazing time playing out and still be home by 10 o'clock and still be able yep. to spend the rest of the day with the family. You play golf? Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll play this year. The 6am tea time sounds really good. So, to me, so. you know, the, the 6am, yes, you're getting out the door at 5am, but that's great because yeah. you're the first people on the course. You get nobody in front of you. You can play around in three and a half hours and away you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Shout out Scott Coda. Yes, we're playing again soon. Oh, Scott. Yeah, definitely. I, I would, I'll get in on that. <laughs> Let me know. That, that'd be a fun round. If, if, if Scott's golf uh, approach to golf is the same as every other approach I know him as, then it should be a fun round. I think we could all stand to, to learn a few life be lessons good. off Scott Coder. Yes, he's he's a great man. Good. Um, but you, know, you, you, make, you start to make all of those choices, but as a result, you get better at 
just determining what truly is important and what you can cut away because eventually your life expands to the point where everything's important, but you can't fit it all in. Mm -hmm. So how do you make those choices to cut away something that is important, but you've still got to cut it away? Um, and it might be that you start combining things so that, yeah, you're getting together with your friends, but you're getting to, together with them at a school event or you're mm -hmm. at a, at a, at a yeah. picnic or something like that where you've still got family time, but you've still got friends. Um, or you, you start to make choices. You, you set up something with your family so that maybe they can give you a free night, but then you can combine a couple of groups of friends that you all know are doing those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. You get better at, at doing life, I suppose, but it's always a struggle. It's always a battle because you know, priorities always change and things always change and you might have to prioritize work one month um, or kids the next month or, um, or, or something else. I mean, you may have a health event that you decide that um, you, know, you need to you prioritize and focus more on that. Um, but at the same time, it, it, people always talk about finding balance. You've got to make sure that you are getting the most out of life for what you want, right? So you make those choices. And, and I think the more you can think about um, truly what you want to get out of some certain event or, or one certain part of, uh, of your life, um, then I think that's, that's how you make those choices. So um, that, you know, it, it all came back to that for me. It was, it was that reasons of bullshit concept was like, all right, I get I can give you a thousand reasons for just about anything and I can make excuses with the best of them. When it comes down to it, um, have I prioritized the right things for me right now? Mm. And can I accept the fact that the choice I make today may only last me a month and I might have to make a bunch of new choices in a month's time or three months time or a year's time or something like that. Um, and can you cope with, can you cope with that, that without, you know, getting stressed and, and losing your mind or, or thinking somehow that you're failing in life because, you know, there is no failure, right? Well, the one thing I've, again, kind of perspective and, and th through um, perspective, but also through, you know, experience now is when you look at one, as I've gotten older, there's a couple of things that have completely shifted. I guess my paradigm kind of shift as mm -hmm. I've gotten older where, you know, high school, you're naive to a lot of stuff. You're still young. Um, even college, when I, I laugh when college kids say they're busy, I'm like, There's, you're the, the least busy you're ever going to be in your life by a long shot. Jordan's looking at me over here. Uh, that's 100% true, and I, I will mention that tomorrow, Jordy, so on the panel. But I, I really find that, I mean, obviously there's, there's some things that come on with, with college and stuff, but at, at the end of the day, I think anybody can agree being an adult over college is way more, there's Definitely. a lot more going on. Definitely. Um, but the, the couple of paradigm shifts that I had that probably have hit me the most, I would say around age 25 maybe, when I kind of out of college, a couple of years kind of out of the that scene and then getting into more of a kind of professional career was one that I would say anybody from age, at least in my, my perspective right now, anyone from probably 20 to 60, 70 is my peer. I know mm -hmm. it sounds odd, but like I don't look at – I don't even know how old you are, to be honest. Um, 38, right? <laughs> right. But uh, you're a good friend. I'm yeah. 41. <laughs> so I, I don't, um, but, but I, I look at that as, you know, 10 years ago would have been totally different. You would, yeah. have, you would have, but I think that perspective has shifted on me where, I, especially in the, the field that I'm in, I talk to a lot of people. Sure. You know, and it's kind of weird you grow up and I, you know, you might still call your friends, parents, Mr. or Mrs. just because it's a habit. Mm -hmm. But, but at the end of the day, you know, I, everybody to me has become a peer. The other, kind of shift to me is now when I look at having a child and I kind of play that back as to one, how were my parents when they watched me? Because we were the same, you know, I had crew at 28, mm -hmm. my parents had me at 28. So we're at the same exact age. So, you know, and it's kind of, 
it's kind of cool looking at it from that perspective where I can say like, man, like this is where my parents were at in life when they had me at one. I was one. Didn't know that, you know, I was probably five, six or seven and they're, you know, in their thirties and I didn't know what was going on. That to me, they were, they had all their stuff figured out. Probably kind of like the duck analogy above the water. They're just gliding underneath their feet are, are, are frantically scrambling. But I've, I've come to the perspective with looking at a lot of people that one life is not easy mm-hmm. it's tough it's the hardest thing you're going to ever, ever do that i found and and everything especially when you have kids that just that, that basically um you, you think you're playing on on hard and all of a sudden you've been up to you know kind of using maybe like a video game analogy or you know you go from easy to now we're we're, we're, we're going up a couple levels sure, here sure. Uh, or a skiing analogy i've now <laughs> hit the, i've now hit probably the blue the blue from the from the the, the green circle so but I, I think now I've looked at it that people with young kids or I see like, you know, I'll see like a woman with two kids with her. I'm like, good Lord. Like, I mean, I, I give my wife all, all the credit in the world. She's with she's with crew probably 90% of the – like if we had to break it down, 80%, 90% of the time she, she's with him. I'm with him 10 to 20% of the time. Now, yeah, on like weekends I see a lot of them. But it's still she's – she's got that down very good you mm-hmm. know where i don't think i could i just don't think i i mean I, I if i force myself to i could but but she's done a very good job with that but i put that in perspective of like other people i'm like there's a lot of stuff either work and and then you're talking about finances you're talking about children you're talking about health you're talking about social aspect like there's a lot going on for everybody so i'm always very sympathetic to a lot of people where mm-hmm. i think they use the analogy if you were to throw kind of that if you throw all your problems in in the circle you'd quickly take yours back because it's not as bad as other people's and and that's one thing i've kind of noted especially being around a lot of people is that you know really give people kind of a break a little bit because people are trying the heart their hardest and well, i don't know if you find that no no absolutely you, you got a few I mean, more years i guess to, to kind of have that perspective or or a perspective on that but i look when dante was born i was i was a deer in headlights i mean i had no idea yeah. what i was thinking um you know, I, I remember Karen had some complications initially uh, during the delivery. Um, she had a, 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 a C-section at the time. And so at the time that they, sort of handed me the baby and then taken her to recovery, I'm like literally standing there going, holy God, what do I do now? And that was, that was like that first, I mean, you know, it, it probably would have been about two minutes, maybe three before the nurse walked back in and said, let me help you out. But yeah. at the same time, it's just that moment where, like life has just changed massively and you don't really realize it until you've got this living breathing creature that's completely reliant on you for everything um and again i'm I'm in the same situation as you i have an incredible wife who um has you know not only put up with my crap but you know all of all of the curveballs life has thrown four four boys yeah that's exactly four boys (laughs) and uh, you know just as an aside let me tell you some of the greatest days in life will start with don't tell your mother um, that's one for the dads out there or the moms. I can't, for that I can't case. wait for that one. Yeah. Um, so uh, look, Karen knows <laughs> there, there, there's, there's no story I can tell that she doesn't already know, but, uh, she, like I said, she's a hell of a lot smarter than any of us. Um, but, uh, but as your perspective changes, you, you, you will always look around and think, holy God, those people have got it together. And I think I, I'm very fortunate in, in that my father and I are very close. Um, so, and, and my mother too, and I can often call them, but you know, there are so many times during life where I've, I've looked at what my boys are doing and felt like I needed to somehow call them and make an apology for all the things that I did when I was that age. Um, and I remember just, you know, over a couple of beers one night talking to my dad and saying, you know, I, I just remember watching you and you always seem to have it together. And he just laughed 
And he looked at me as if to say, you know, surely you've worked out by now that nobody has it all together and we're just doing our best. Yeah. And you may have seven eighths of your life perfect, but there's going to be that one eighth that isn't perfect. Maybe it's uh, your relationships or your finance or your, you know, your job situation or something like that. But because it's not perfect, that's the, that's the thing you're going to focus on and you're going to be trying to improve that and trying to make it better. And then somebody else is looking at your life going, holy God, that guy's got pretty much everything sorted out and they're not going to focus on those small things. And it's very humbling um, to realize that eventually that, that nobody's quite got it sorted out and there's always another opportunity to learn. And I don't know, I, I don't know if there was an age that I worked that out or, or something that, that sort of pushed me into that. I mean, I, I remember being, you know, horribly arrogant like most 20-year-olds are and thinking I had it all worked out. And, and somewhere along the lines, realizing that I didn't and that there was a, a, a lot of moments in life where, you know, sitting back and listening and hearing the stories of other people can really solidify something. And it might, not be, it might be that you disagree with them or it might be that you, you see a path that you never saw before, but... Um, taking that opportunity uh, a bit like you do with podcasts to find out what life is like for other people suddenly, you know, gives you a perspective on, on the world of other people. So uh, moving to the States where all I knew was Karen's family, I, I suddenly, uh, oddly enough through CrossFit was, was the first opportunity that I had to really develop a close set of friends and come, I'd always had a, a sports background with kind of like a rugby mm-hmm. environment. So you were always looking for that, that, you Team. know, group approach to sport mm-hmm. and, and developing a lot of incredibly diverse and, and, uh, and amazing people that I'd met through CrossFit guys like Paul DiDomenicus, yep. uh, Scott Brightwell, Matt Hobbs, you know, that kind of group of people that, um, had always, um, you know, been that, been that open welcome, welcoming environment into, into that sort of CrossFit environment, wherever I went meant that, um, there were all these amazing people to learn from. And I mean, you hear the stories of some of these people, you hear about the backgrounds and you start thinking, Holy God, my life's so vanilla. Um, but it's, it's amazing to listen to that kind of perspective and, and to see the way that it can influence, you know, maybe that next step for you or maybe that next idea or, or maybe to bring that next thing out. Um, and it's oddly enough changed the way, so much about the way I approach um, bringing on new people into the organization. Now I'm in a position where I'm starting to hire new people um, and having an opportunity to, d- to develop engineers under me. Um, and offering people an, uh, an opportunity to, to explore ideas, to, to test ideas in a, in a fairly free space um, becomes more and more important and more and more fun as you watch it happen. And I think, I mean, I've, I've been listening to what you talk about with Ellie uh, in, your, mm-hmm. in, the, in the real estate podcasts and you see you bringing Ellie along and it's, it's just a fascinating role reversal. You know, you've been learning your whole life and then all of a sudden you've got this opportunity to help other people yeah. do the same thing and it's so much fun. But what you realize again is you never stop learning. You never have it all worked out. Nothing's ever going to be perfect. So you may as well roll with it and see what happens. Yeah. I think the one, it was kind of funny when, when me and Ellie came up with the idea for uh, our podcast or the realty talk podcast, I go, well, one, one, I wanted, this is not geared at real estate. So I wanted to have, I did want to have a niche podcast geared at real estate. Cause I do like it. I just don't want to bore everybody else out there with long, conversations on real estate so we do kind of little snippets each week um i really enjoy those because i I find that's probably where i have my most knowledge just because i do it so often that it's just naturally where i gravitate towards but the whole purpose of it was here we're going to take a brand new agent Mm -hmm. that has not sold a house has not done anything literally got her license brand new um open like a sponge to learn stuff but that's where she is paired with me who's been in it for almost a decade 
of kind of my ups and downs. And to be honest, we're only four years different in age. Sure. But I've been doing this since I was 20, 21. And um, so I've had a lot of different experiences. I've experienced it through college, through being single, through being married with a child. So I've had this up and down. I've experienced no clients to today where I don't have enough time to get to everything, which is just like a struggle, which was kind of funny because last week when we had talked about it, Ellie said, what do we do when we, we have all the time in the world, but no clients? And I'm looking at it and it's like, it's different because to me, I'm like, I got no time, but I have a lot of clients. Sure. So we're on a very opposite end of the spectrum, but mm-hmm. I've built, I've totally flip-flopped that over eight, nine years of just hard work and, and doing little things. So I kind of look back at it when you talked about teaching, like, I'm teaching, I'm now getting away from what I'm really kind of focused on to now I'm stripping it down to where I was seven, eight years ago, but it allows me to kind of have different perspectives on stuff and to allow her to kind of don't make these mistakes that I did or, or kind of like learning from a mentor, just like, Hey, I'm, I'm just gonna, I've experienced all the stuff that you shouldn't have to experience. And I'm just gonna tell you right now, don't waste your time on that and do this. And now part of it would be good if she experienced certain things, but then I also know like, it's kind of a dead end. Like just go go down this path, and and then from that path, try to build your own better path than maybe I took. But I think that's. But that's always the challenge, isn't it? Being a mentor is is to sit there and yeah. say, yes, here's all my experiences, and yes, that was a dead end for me. But at the same time, trying to understand why it was a dead end. So if somebody wants to explore Correct, new yes. ideas in that environment, how can you, how can you offer them what you've experienced? Yes. But at the same time, let them shape their own path. And, then and that, that's, that's yeah. a struggle, isn't it? Yeah, because part of it is you say you want to say, like, don't do this. But there's times where I know she's set up, not in a bad way, but, like, say she's calling a client. Mm-hmm. I know I know from the first instance it's going to bomb. Like, I can just tell the way she's talking, the way they're acting, whatever. I'm sitting in my head. I'm like, I could easily swing this because I've done this a thousand times. But I'm not going to say a word. I'm just going to see where it goes, probably knowing that it's not going to end well. But at the end of the day, she's got to experience that to get better. Mm. So it might be one where I could step in, save it and be, but I'm like, she, she needs to hit a speed bump. She needs to lose, I say lose the client, but she needs to screw it up. She mm-hmm. needs to come across as not knowing everything that she may know in two years from now or th- or even next year or a few years from now, but she's got to have that experience of failing to get sure. better. She's got to have that rejection. So like a lot of times I'll be sitting there and like, I could step in, but it's not going to teach her as well as just stubbing her toe and failing and, and using that as like, ah, that didn't feel so good. I got to get better at this. And I think I'm a big learn by doing kind of person. Mm-hmm. So that's what we talked about. Again, we were picking on Jordan before. The, the parenthood analogies keep coming back, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. But we, we were talking about, uh, I forgot what we were even saying. And, and uh, I think it was about the resume. Mm-hmm. And then, but we're talking about like the college is good. They're going to teach you how to do a resume. Mm-hmm. But we're in a position right now with our office that we're looking at hiring a person. So I have eight or nine resumes sitting in my inbox. True. And you just came in and talked about doing the same the same thing. But college teaches you one thing, and you basically contradicted what she said, not in a bad way, but but a real life scenario, which is what I always found out fascinating when between college and not. It's like college gets you to think, gets the critical thinking part of it. But it's not gonna. It's not the real world. Like you're gonna get out there and you're gonna learn by doing a lot of it. So absolutely, I think that you, at least from a hiring standpoint, I don't think anybody taught you the perfect way to hire. I think that's evolved over time. 
Yeah, certainly. And my, again, my, hired, but. my hiring experience is fairly limited. Um, in the military, we, people got posted. So yep. um, from a hiring perspective, uh, again, I, I inter- my interview process was fairly limited. Um, and a lot of my knowledge of hiring comes from uh, our talent identification specialist at North Titanium, who is Joe Shoemaker. Used to oh, work at ETS, yep. Um, yep. has since transferred across to us. Yeah. Incredible guy. Um, if you ever want to study in positivity, he's your man. Yes. Um, but the the analogy he gave me and I, gave me and I absolutely adore is um, attitude and aptitude. I can train the rest. So what's the second one? Ad- attitude and aptitude. Oh, aptitude. Gotcha. Sorry. I like that. Yeah. No, you're good. Yeah. good. So he um, he sort of pitched that idea to me, and and I'd sort of uh, looked down at RPI, and we'd spoken to the people at Clarks and looking for interns and stuff like that, and. If, if you went to RPI and said, give me, um, I don't know, aerospace and mechanical engineers, you'd get hundreds of candidates. How do you know that that person is going to be the right fit? Now, to give you an example, when I was going through college, um, the internet was only just starting up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had basically text emails and, and long before smartphones and, and everything else like that. Um, so by the time you hit the real world, real world environment after four years of college, a lot, a lot of ideas have progressed and you have to get comfortable with the idea about lifelong learning. Um, but at the same time, um, can you bring a passion and a drive and a, and a set of ideas and initiative to a job? Because largely the tools that you operate within the job will change from company to company and place to place. But if you can adapt yourself and, and maintain that sort of pragmatic objective approach to, to problem solving and, and to getting things better, then you will find a place wherever you go in the world. So finding that candidate who can come in with um, some good ideas, adapt those ideas, or help you progress those ideas, um, finding those kinds of candidates, uh, I found it a little bit difficult, to be honest. Um, and usually when you find them, they're, they're really obvious and they're like diamonds in the rough and you can't wait to, to sort of make an offer to them. Um, but at the same time, it's especially with you, like growing a business, it's all about how do, you, um, how do you create an environment where they can come in, provide their own ideas, provide their own thoughts, provide their own improvement, but at the same time, maintain the brand mindset mm-hmm. that is your business and that is you. So, I mean, you started this business largely on your own, right? I mean, sorry, it's, it's your, uh, well, no, your no, family I, business, but... Um, no, we if, um, it started back in the 50s. My father bought it in the early 90s. I came on in 2000. 11 January of 11 in over eight years I've slowly transitioned into more of like kind of like development operation things here and there so um I, I didn't I'm, I'm what I'm basically I'm trying to do is take what he's built and do like a Kavanaugh 2.0 and just kind of build off of that so yeah. you're, you're now you're now turning turning the brand that is Kavanaugh Realty in Plattsburgh to your brand your personal Correct. brand, your what you want that business to be, right? Yes. Yep. But now you're bringing on other people. Mm-hmm. And how do you collect the best ideas and, and bring those people on board, but at the same time, have them maintain what you want that business to be? Mm-hmm. And it's the same, you know, it all comes back to offer, uh, offering those opportunities, offer, offering the opportunity to learn, to grow, to fail, to do all of those kinds of things at the same time as molding them into, um, you know, the vision for the business that you have. Because obviously that's hugely important to you. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously you've got a, a, a great idea about where you want to take that over the next two years or five years or 10 years. And you know what you want it to be. And how do you grow those people to make them support that vision for you, right? And, and it's, I, look, I'm, I'm by no means the expert in it, but it's, it's a constant 
uh, it's a fascinating challenge to me to see the way people take that approach and to read those kind of books and, and to, to try and understand how do you get everybody pulling in the same direction? And I don't care if it's, uh, if it's Boeing and 10,000 people or, you know, whoever, mm-hmm. how do you get everybody pulling in the right direction? Right. Um, and that I started out as a, a as a basically working on squadrons doing maintenance and everything else, but it was always the idea of organizational systems theory. Um, what does a business need in order to grow and develop? What are the, what are the true objectives of that business? Um, tell me the why of the business. Everybody knows the how, oh, sorry, this comes from a book that I just read actually. Yeah, it's uh, it's called start with why by Simon. Sinek. Yeah, I get it. Um, incredible book. Um, but it always talks about everybody understands the how of the business and the what. Everybody understands what we do. Everybody understands how we do it. But in terms of understanding why, that becomes um, the really difficult aspect to pull together. Um, because if everybody understands the why, then it's easy to get people pulling in the same direction. Galen has literally pulled that book right off his shelf right now. I love that book. Fantastic book. Um, so that becomes th- that, that organizational systems engineering, um, systems of systems, the systems approach to um, making sure you've got everything in place to do that. That to me is what gets me out of bed in the morning. Now I'm the quality assurance manager at Norsk. um, But at the same time, that keeps me looking at process. How do we um, collect the right data and analyze the data in such a way that it tells us what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong? Um, You know, what's hidden and what's visible? How do we change the way we collect data or change the way we analyze data? to make sure that we're tied in with the overall business goals from a quality perspective. And that feeds into all of the great ideas that everybody else is bringing to the table so that we as a business can collectively get better, collectively improve and and collectively grow and expand. But that's, I mean, that's a, that's a lifelong challenge. That's an incredible challenge to try and pull all of that together. But uh, Synex theories in in start with why is, is so scalable to any business you like. Um, And that, that fundamental concept of, of why, you know, what do we, truly trying to achieve rather than just coming into work and, and doing the, the day-to-day how do we focus that in on future goals i, I got to um so I, I have i think i believe i have that on audible so the thing is i gotta as people have known on the book on or on the podcast i do have a lot of books i do like to read i try to read every single day if possible um but i do have audible which I've found that Audible's good, but I have a tendency when I'm in the car, because I'm in the car a lot and I can listen to them, I do have a tendency to daydream in the car. <laughs> so what ends up happening is for five, 10 minutes, I could be driving down the road, it's on, becomes background noise. Sure. I'm thinking about a thousand different things throughout the day and I'm not really sitting down. And, and so I find that if I'm listening to it, there's a distraction where I should go back through and actually read the hardcover because I, I don't read on Kindles. I literally straight up hard copy books. I... The most I bought things I buy online are books. Mm-hmm. Another one came in the other day, and I just I see one, and I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna buy it, add it to my shelf. Sure. I do want to read through that because I think it, the why aspect, kind of what you were saying, is it's it's tough. Um, I it depends. What I find, and I haven't been hiring people long ever. I mean, this is I basically this is new territory for me. Managing um, is been, is new to me. Um, I've never had anybody underneath me. Now I have. Kind of, you know, with Jordan, there's a couple interns, our agents, a couple people coming on. So, I mean, there's people, I find that my, I talked about it before, my job, I really find that I wear three hats and Mm -hmm. one of them is the operational 
you know, lead leadership part of just a group of people. Um, but I find that I probably should write it down. I kind of have it written down in, in not a real formal way, but in just ideas and sketches and stuff. I really have a good idea in my, my brain as to what I'm, I'm doing and want to pull off. And I, I'm very much like I have, it's weird. I think we talked about this before. I have kind of, I'm like a blinder kind of person. I feel like I'm a horse mm-hmm. like running the Kentucky Derby where I see the finish line. I can, I can see, I wouldn't even say the whole finish line. I want to say that I can see turns of a, of a track. I've never used this analogy, but this is what I kind of find that I, I see turns of the track. So maybe as I'm going down with the blinders, I can see the track and maybe that track is my 10 year goal. Mm-hmm. Like, but then even just a month or two ago, something popped in my head, another idea, not, not like something that's going to happen tomorrow, but another one where I'm like, I think that's going to be my next big goal that I want to take on. Meaning mm-hmm. my first big goal was me as a single agent. I have obviously I have my goal set. I had a 10 year goal set for myself as a, as a realtor, just as a single person. Sure. I have two years to pull it off. I'm in a position where I'm, I'm setting myself up to maybe I I'm setting myself up to be able to achieve that. I mean, mm-hmm. like I'm kind of aligning in the right way. Step two is the company. So now I'm like, okay, now I'm looking at, now we're probably year one of that. What's my 10 year goal of that? Now trying to, obviously now it's expanded. It's kind of like having kids, mm-hmm. meaning now as people start coming on the team, how am I going to try to coordinate and try to, like you said, give my why or my view or my culture into that company. And then it's like, then I'm kind of already even like inserting like another portion of that on top of that where I want that to evolve. So it's, yeah, Absolutely. But it, it's it's like it's all in my brain, and, and like one, it's kind of weird. Like, um, I think it just happens naturally. But I know, like the book, like Think and Grow Rich, kind of like what your mind can see and believe it can achieve, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I I truly believe in that, like visualization. Like I visualized a few things that I don't know how the hell that's going to happen, but I can just see the end result, and I'm like, I know it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's just more of, okay, now let's strip it down year by year, week by month by month, week by week, day by day, hour by hour. And I think the biggest idea with like getting, because I can't do it alone, and mm-hmm. I've realized that. And I yeah. know that I've known that, like, there's no, I was never going to fake it on my own to try to make it. Like, I realize I need people, and I need people that are better than me at a lot different, a lot of different things, because I, I bring a certain skill set, but I'm limited. Yep. I'm one person. Um, and what I found is the only way I think to get people to that, to your why or to why you want to do it is one, have a bigger why than that's like a, a selfish why, which I don't, I have like a really big, hopefully why that will help more than just myself kind mm-hmm. of deal sure. and which it can expand to multiple people. But then it's also wondering, I think a lot of it comes from enthusiasm. I think a lot of it comes from probably a little bit of crazy because I think some people look at me, you know, that, that work with me and I probably seem a little over the top at times and some of my friends are probably like that there's something not quite right up there <laughs> but i find that when, when i talk to other friends that have kind of that same same mindset that we all just kind of were like no you're you're normal but but i think meaning uh, like um you know a good good mentor of mine and a good friend aaron we talked about him before mm-hmm. yeah um, absolutely aaron, aaron benner very good friend of mine and business mentor um anybody knows aaron he's i i kind of he's like he's like a he's like a what do we call a firefly that we're trying to catch in a mason jar, but we can never quite catch him because he's always just going to, I'm sure Libby would, would, would 
um, react the same way and say that's a perfect analogy for Mr. Aaron. But we look at each other and we're like, yeah, you're kind of normal, but we're both, we're both a little kooky and we're both, I think, but I think you need some of that to, to rub off on people to kind of see like, I don't know. This guy's a little crazy, but I think we can trust him, and I think we—I think he's on the right path. I don't know if that's true or not. I find that I think just by really pushing for what I want, eventually the right people will jump aboard, and I kind of just sift. It will just sift out to so the the right people will end up in the right spot to hopefully execute. And I know that's a jumble like all over the place, but if no, people I, know me, that's my mind. But I get that, and I fully you can follow that. That's good. No, yeah. I I completely understand that because uh, I mean there is something incredibly compelling about passion, um, passion for a hobby, passion for art, passion for your job. I mean, how many people get to go through life and be truly passionate about what they do? I mean, to yeah. really enjoy, mm-hmm. you know, getting up in the morning and be energized about coming into work and doing the things. Yeah, and there's always going to be bad days at work. But I think if you can bring, um, you know, an energy and a passion into what you do, I mean, Aaron Ben is a great example. I mean, the guy brings energy and passion to everything that he does. That's compelling. It's attractive. People want to be a part of that. And I think, uh, I mean, I think it's unbelievably good to have the five-year and 10-year goals, whether they're written down or not. Um, and it's even better to have, to, to be able to tie everything together and say, this is the day-to-day, the month, the month, to have that, that almost fanatical devotion to short-term goals that are going to achieve the long-term goals, provided you're comfortable with the idea that those 10-year goals are going to be constantly changing. Oh, all the time. And, yeah. and you're going to be headed in that path, but you might change the path or you might change the direction or you might change, you know, something new comes along, uh, your kids come along. Mm-hmm. And it changes the path or the direction that you might want to take, or time frame, or time frame that yeah. you want you want to do it, provided that you are that you can still retain the passion and the direction and the and, and the vision for what you want, work or life or whatever it happens to be. Um, I don't think normal's got anything to do with it. I think um, I find somebody who's passionate about what they do, and I don't care what it is, um, is an incredibly compelling thing to see. So somebody who's passionate about music or passionate about art or, or who can, can relay that passion. I mean, you know, Scott Brightwell and I started talking about the, uh, the software industry that he's working in. And he's got some staggering ideas about, you know, the scope and level of, of, a, of, a, of a process like that and how it can help. Um, and seeing the passion of, of that come across, again, just to sit back and listen to that bleed through in a conversation. It's so incredibly compelling to listen to. Um, and it's such a great thing to be around. Uh, so no, I, I, I don't consider it normal or otherwise, but at the same time, I, you know, I think it's great. I think if you didn't carry that passion in, then what the hell would you be doing? I mean, I understand doing a job because it gets you somewhere or, you know, it lets you take the next step. Maybe you're saving up money to go do a course or saving up money to travel or something like that. And if they're the choices you make, fantastic. That's great because you're letting, you're, you're structuring your life about, around exploring your passions. But I think a life, you know, bereft of that kind of, you know, opportunity would be horrifying. Yeah. I, I, I thought about that the other day. I said, if you think about how often people work in their life, I mean, if, if you take the normal 40-hour work week, and that's not counting the time getting ready, going to work, commuting, things like that, it could be 10 hours of your day. Sure. Um, every single day for 30, 40 years, whatever you work, and it's like, man, if you're not doing something every single day, I mean, one, I make my own schedule, which is great, and I'm lucky to do that, but... I'm also my own, like, I don't think a boss could be more, like, I don't think if I had a boss, they could be more um, strict, or not strict, but, you know, kind of, uh, like, I'm my own, 
you know what I'm trying to say? Like I keep my, I basically, you drive yourself harder than any boss could. Yeah, there you go. I'm, I'm jumbling my words here, but yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think another boss could, could drive me as much as I do myself. It's just the way I naturally am. Sure. But I, I find that I do it partly because I'm excited about the future. And I don't know, I think probably part of it is I try to do it too quickly. I want to say too quickly. I'm very much a long-term kind of person, but mm-hmm. I find that like day to day, if I'm not like doing certain things, I'm like I'm missing an opportunity. I'm wasting my time. I'm 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 going slower than I probably should. Like yes, will one day off or or slower derail me? Mm-hmm. No, but it's just my mindset, kind of like the same thing. Like if you don't go to the gym one day, there's a slippery slope where. But this is where we come back to balance, isn't it? Yes, so you exactly. Come back to that idea of balance yeah. to say. Yes, it's really important to focus on the short-term goals and, and the long-term goals and everything else, but try not to miss what's in front of you. I'm pretty, I know, I'm pretty good about that. It's just, it's more of, I'm, I'm very much like I like, like I enjoy what I'm doing, so I'm not, I'm not looking too much. I'm just going to grab another drink here. Oh, yeah, yeah. You want, you want, we got a club soda there too if you want that. No, keep you like going. the bubbly? You like the water? Um <laughs> No, I mean, I mean, for for me, if I'm like I, the day to day stuff, I have fun with. So I'm not really one where I felt like I missed out on the day because I'm very present in a lot of stuff I do. Like if I'm meeting with people, if I'm talking with people, um, you know, e- even with I, the only probably negative is is if I'm like trying to return messages between like idle time where I'm like texting or calling people. Sure. Like you might think that I'm not present but i might not if i'm just sitting there and like four of us are talking and it's like well i'm just gonna bang out some stuff here but like one-on-one with people i'm very engaging if i'm with clients i'm very one-on-one with them i try to i try to really stay present and you know even with like jordy sometimes i'll be talking i'll be on the phone or doing something but there's times i try to just really focus on what we're doing um so overall i'm pretty good but it's more of just like it's the other stuff it's just when when i try to i just don't like to to waste my time so I, I really try to be proactive i try to put things in play very quickly so if anybody knows me you came in and mentioned my scatterbrained whiteboard up here but a lot of it is like a lot of it's up there to keep me accountable but to say hey you got to do it and i don't want to have it sit up there too long so i'm constantly every week erasing stuff and adding stuff but 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 progress is being made so a lot of it is i'm just i'm very much like I know I know the direction I want to go in, but it's the same thing. It's like my brain is a bunch of fireflies that I'm trying to collect to just get them all in the bottle to make it happen. If- For those of you who haven't been in Galen's office before, I'm sort of staring at, uh, at two whiteboards with a number of ideas, you know, cast across it. And, and for whatever his modesty might, uh, might have put out there, it's actually um, quite an impressive collection of ideas in terms of, I'd actually say this does keep you quite you know, literally running you down in terms of, of where you want to be in 12 months and what you want to do and how you want to expand and everything else. It, it's interesting how, you know, whenever you look at, at those business success stories or you, you look at the next idea or you look at the things that have been, you know, most successful in wherever I've been, um, it always, I, I can't remember where the quote from, but it comes like, um, be first, be better or cheat. <laughs> now, most of us aren't going to cheat. Um, and first only lasts for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you keep being better or how do you, you know, or how do you keep being first? What makes you different? What makes you, you know, it comes back to that concept of why, why, you know, if, if you decide that you want to be the disruptive influence in the, uh, in the industry, or you want to be, um, known as, 
you know, the best for whatever reason, the safest, the fastest, uh, the most cost effective, whatever it happens to be. How do you, how do you keep maintaining those ideas and keep maintaining that position? How do you recognize what about you is different? How do you, how do you determine that from the data you have available? Mm -hmm. I mean, we talked about data analytics when I first walked in, but but what, what data is telling you that you're different or what data is telling you that you aren't different and therefore you have to change? I mean, how do you drive change into what you do so that you can maintain your brand or your mindset or your focus or your vision or whatever it happens to be? Um, and it, it's often fascinating. How do you, you know, what do you know? Now, maybe it's not written down in front of you, but what do you know about, about your business and your attitude and your approach that makes you different? that makes you better, that makes you smarter, that makes you first. Um, and that's always a challenge in, in anything that you're doing. How do you just get that little bit better? What's that continuous improvement focus that you might have? Um, I, I am forever fascinated by the challenge of not just collecting data or, or should I say analyzing or even manipulating the data, but, but trying to find a way to present it in what I'd call a 30-second look. And, and the board is a great example of that 30 second look because whenever you want to present something that, that drives a behavioral change or, or a behavioral continuation, how do you take reams and reams of data, huge amounts of knowledge, years of investment and time and numbers and everything else and distill it down to the most important pieces of that information so that somebody can look at a chart in 30 seconds and you can drive a behavior off that. They can understand the story in 30 seconds in general terms and they might need a bit more detail but in that 30 second look, they can go, all right, I know the story you're telling. I know generally what it's telling me. And now I accept and understand your vision. I buy into that. And we're going to move forward on that basis. And whether that's leading up, leading down or leading amongst your peers um, or leading for the people who work for you, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily matter. I guess it's a influence is, is another way of yeah. how do you influence change in order to maintain what you're looking for? So... Uh, again, it, it sort of comes back to geeking out over data. Um, what's the data really telling you? What are you not collecting? What are you collecting that might be telling you that slightly different story or giving you that slightly different idea that makes you first or that makes you better or tells you the easiest way to cheat? I don't know. Um, yeah, I, no, I, th I think the... Um, but this, sorry, your whiteboard here is, is just a fascinating 30-second look into the, into the mind of Galen. I mean... Try, try to call, yeah. <laughs> It, it, no, but it, it truly is because it, it distills down so quickly all of the things that are important to you over the next 12 months and the ideas that you have and the focuses that you have. And, and I think it'd be very easy for one of your agents, for example, to stand in front of it and say, all right, I understand where you're going. I understand why he's asking me to do this or mm -hmm. why I'm practicing this or why we're changing this on a week to week basis or something like that. Um, so no, well, I mean, to me, that's brilliant. Yeah. Well, I mean, one, one of the things I have up there, which you kind of mentioned about you know, I think the, uh, you know, the you talked about working more efficient, but like the work smarter, work harder, work smarter kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I have one one thing up there, which a lot of this stuff too has been things that I could I could erase, but a lot of it's just like mindset things where I look up and I'm like, okay, just make sure, just kind of I want to keep it as a as a principle kind of that I, I really yeah. look back to. So one of the ones is effort is controllable, and that's pretty much the only thing we have that we can do is your effort. Obviously, attitude, you yep. know, it's one, but I'd say effort and attitude. Is what are you? What's your mindset? You know, are you positive? Are are you you know kind of relentless with with sticking with stuff? And then do you have the effort? So like to me, at least in my business, there's a ton of rejection. There's a ton of you know I get told more. I get told no 
way more than I'm ever going to get told yes to my business. Sure. Bad's going to happen way more than good's going to happen. What's my, what's my attitude? How am I going to react to that? And then also, what am I going to do? What's the effort that I'm going to put forward to basically, you know, get better and, and, and improve. And that's the controllable aspect of it. So if I look at it where, you know, I could dwell in a bad situation or I can maybe take like we talked about, one day off, or I could take a half a day off, or I could, you know, and that's where, where it comes down to is my effort, where it's like, do I, what do I want to do more? Do I want to, at night, sit down and watch movies on Netflix, or do I want to sit there and learn? I choose to learn. I choose to, you know, on, you know, that that's just my hobby, but it's my hobby. To, I don't know why, but like I like, you talked about early, beginning of the podcast, constant improvement, trying mm-hmm. and like your life's one big you know, we're one big kind of stone that we're just polishing and trying to get better throughout life. And what I always look at is your effort is controllable, meaning whatever I put in, you know, whatever I want out of life, whether it be a passion around something or, you know, if I was in a job that I hated, well, what's your effort? Your effort could be, I'm going to study late at night to get into a career or a trade Absolutely. or learn a skill or to get out of that position. It might take you five years, but you can do it, mm-hmm. you know, and that's one thing I always... I'm always, uh, you know, I kind of look at people. I'm like, you know, it might, like today might not be good. Tomorrow night not be good. But it's like, yeah. just set your long-term goal and chip away at it. So for me, now obviously I'm not looking at this stuff as bad, but I'm like, you know, the, but I can control that, you know, and that, that's yeah, that's the one thing I think effort and, and attitude, I'm sure that's been said a million times, but I do have it up there, effort. So when I'm thinking like, why didn't this go my way? Why didn't it go, you know, why didn't this happen? Why did that bad thing happen? You know, one, stay positive because there's days that I'm like, I feel like, or even a week where I feel like I'm in a rut, then there's there's weeks where I'm like, everything I touch is like, ding, 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 <laughs> ding. But I got to be realistic that it's all going to be a good balance out. But sure. But it's always my attitude and how I can control the effort going forward or make Absolutely. things better. And, and so. how much starts with that? So you're right. Effort is controllable. Attitude is controllable. If you if you approach even you know bad days with a positive attitude, you know what am I learning from this? What are we going to do that's better and different and 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 more fun or or how is it going to improve down the track? I mean, I don't think you can underestimate how much that positive attitude Huge. shows. Huge, yeah. And bleeds off into everybody around you. Well, I think you talked about the culture and how to get... Like, if I find that if I have the positive attitude, that hopefully that will attract other positive people. And, Definitely. And the same attitude. And, and that's what I... Like, I always look at my... Our company as a team. Like, sure. I need... I, I don't want to... like. Take take like a you know, like a fantasy team like or, or you know you always want to get the best players like my, my best players will or teammates will naturally hopefully be attracted to the culture of the company not not like an individual thing or not this and that but they're gonna at the overall what's the big focus culture of, of the company I I'm hoping and I I've kind of started to see that over the last year that I've I've attracted to just better people in my life mm-hmm. through just naturally I think. By being positive and just letting it naturally occur. It's just- As we said before, it's compelling, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that kind of attitude and approach and environment is compelling. Um, you know, I, I stayed with Platco for four and a half years and, and it was it was time to, to take the next step. And, mm-hmm. and I got an off, offered an incredible role at North Titanium. But again, I mean, I, I consider myself extraordinarily fortunate to be working with the group of people that we have there at the moment. Um, my boss, Annette, um, is spent 28 years with, uh, with Pratt & Whitney. Um, uh, Tamara Moriako, who is the the COO and, and my next level boss, uh, is out of Baker Hughes um, in the oil and gas industry. And again, they bring this incredible perspective. But um, one of the things I, I find most amazing about my direct boss, Annette, is um, she has almost no ego tied to certain ideas. 
So she's so willing to explore new concepts yeah. and new and take new steps. And that's and, important. And just release you mm-hmm. on the, you know, with enough rope to, to run away and, and really test an idea. Um, and it, it does, it opens up those ideas to be able to say, all right, well, um, I can run with this. I can try it out. And, and maybe it fails completely and I fall on my face or something like that. But, you know, she's going to, you know, laugh, um, call me a fool and, and, you know, find the next idea. Uh, and, and finding bosses who are so, um, you know, so in, such incredible leaders that they don't, that they maintain that humbleness about them mm-hmm. and they let smart people off the leash. Um, I am by no means the smartest person in the room. Um, and like I said, I work with a, an incredibly gifted group of people. So um, it's one of the lessons I try and learn every day because I, I, I suck at it. I mean, I love my own ideas and, and mm-hmm. often I tie my ego a little too, a little too much into them. Um, but being able to to watch some of these leaders that we have at our company and the way they approach those kinds of ideas, it's it's such a it's such an education. Um, and I, I only hope that you know when I reach that level, if if I uh, am uh, I do get the opportunity at that set of heights, that I can offer the same kind of opportunity to the people that work for me that I've had from that run of bosses that I've had. You know that uh, that opportunity every day to go in and explore new ideas and new possibilities. Yeah. Um, and as I said, that's what keeps me coming into work. If I didn't have that opportunity, I'd probably be looking somewhere else. So, well, um, so I think it's, it's always the next. It's it's always how you can improve. But it's always how you can get better. And I think yeah. that's the same thing. Like I show up and and I, the reason is I've I've kind of tasted the, the whole like the success that I'm hopefully building. I'm getting like small bits and pieces and like I said, little tastes of why wow, I've been doing this for nine years and I'm like, okay, now, now, okay, now things are starting to like, I call it the snowball effect. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's actually a, it's not a Warren Buffett book also. I, I think I saw that the no, other day. I potentially, had, I, but I'm going to, I'm going to display but, but, my ignorance But it has nothing, <laughs> I have no clue. I've never read that book. I actually have it, but I haven't read it. But the idea that just like our efforts now is going to build a little snowball and then they're just compounding as we roll the snowball, you know, farther and farther. But I'm seeing small glimpses of that, which keeps me coming back, keeps me hungrier, keeps me like, okay, like I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm fine tuning. Cause if I've gotten to this point from where I screwed up, we talked about with Ellie before yeah, the yeah, first absolutely. couple of years. Now it's like, things are better. And then in my head, I'm like, well, how much better could it be in five years, 10 years, 15 years? Like, by just doing the same things, naturally it's going to evolve. But sometimes it, could, you, it might not get better. But sometimes work, you but, go back and you explore those past ideas and you, and you think about, do I know more about why I screwed up? Yes. You know, yep, am exactly. I different now? And could I follow that same path and 100%. do better this time because yep. I'm not going to make that same screw up or at least I understand why I screwed up and I can avoid it. Or things I do now that I kick myself for not doing them five years earlier. <laughs> and simple things, but it's just ideas where I'm like, but again, I, I probably needed the five years to, to get... Because if I if I would have done them five years ago, maybe it would have been different. Maybe I would be a different person. Maybe I would have acted a different way. But I probably needed that to get that that perspective that I've been able to build off of. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think sometimes you walk around with that crippling social anxiety. You know that did I say the right thing? Did I do the right thing? You know, oh my god, I can't believe I did that. Um, and you probably only want the only one in the room who recognizes that. But at the same time, all of those things feed into who you are now. I suppose. Yeah. And you're right, you might not have known that five years ago and you might have screwed up that way five years ago and you would do it better now, but only because you screwed up five years ago. So I think yeah. it's always fascinating to, to sometimes revisit those ideas and think, you know, what could I do a little bit better this time or, or how could I improve it? 
But but I think there's the times too where I might say or do something that I'm like that was that was dumb. I shouldn't have done that, said that, whatever. But at the end of the day, it's like I've made a I've made I've I've gotten to places better because I've I've just been myself. Where I sure. find if I when I first got in the business, I was very much um coming in at a young age and again we talked about that that paradigm shift of being like a a kid to now peer yeah meaning i always felt like the people i was dealing with were adults and i was still a kid and why are they why would they listen to me and i got to act you know i got to act more reserved because i don't want to act myself because they're adults and they're gonna think i'm a kid and blah 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 so i really kind of like kept myself in a box for probably the first four years and then i was like you know what kind of about the right about that age 24 25 i was like you know what screw it like i'm just gonna be myself <laughs> and I, I kind of the uh you know the the uh you know the kind of the give a shit factor is slowly drop kind of like that you know in the sense of like i i, I do care but i don't care because i would rather be myself than try to like pretend that i'm a certain way sure and i've found that i've gotten better and i made <laughs> the better the friends i'd rather make at this point in my life than than maybe people that don't know me for who i am so i think if anybody meets me now whether it's business or outside of work or whatever it's more than the same. Like I'm not a different guy going grocery shopping or going to the gym or going like do, going to see a house as I would be no, any other look, way. I, I honestly it's, wish I had that kind of self confidence. I'm not sure I do. Um, I don't know if it's self confidence <laughs> or or just total oblivious like naivety. No, I, I, I sometimes think it'd be nice to have that uh, that better angel sitting on my shoulder telling me I was doing okay and I hadn't actually screwed something up. But uh, but you know, life's like that sometimes and. You know, I, I'm not necessarily sure I've I've managed to uh, you know push my give a shit factor down to that point where I can I I, I can be so confident in that kind of situation. I'm, I'm sure I'd probably suck at your job if I was trying to do that. But well, vice um, versa, yeah. <laughs> so so it, it's it's kind of one of those uh, I don't know. I guess you know you're always trying to take steps steps forward and and hope they're all in the right direction. Yeah, um, constant improvement. And, yeah, and that's that's all about what it comes down to. So so the. Um, and and to prove to everybody that Craig actually is a nerd and he's not just playing it up, up, up on the thing, he, so he brings this laptop and he shows me. Now I, I got a, I, I'm a definite number. I, I I contemplated going into accounting in college before I, I I chose that I actually didn't want to go into accounting for the rest of my life. But <laughs> the but you ended up bringing up all these basically um, graphs and pie charts and mm -hmm. bar graphs and things like this, and I do have. Oddly enough, I love numbers. I like statistics. I'm probably not the – I like statistics in the sense of what you did when they bring up and you see the numbers and they tell a story because mm. we mentioned about the 30-second thing. Absolutely. I'm fascinated by it because I, I do this every year. Same thing. I, I lay it out. I find you know, where did my deals come from? Where did my leads come from? Where did my – I see this all so I, I'm not guessing. I can look up there and say, holy crap, I didn't realize that 30% of my business was this mm. or – 25% of my my clients use this bank or use this attorney or something like but I, I look at all those kind of numbers because it gives me a perspective now mm -hmm. maybe I like that balance maybe I like the way it's going maybe the way I don't like the way it's trending I'm like I got to really up you know part one of my things this year that I want to get better at was um, referrals sure which is a better use of my time in business and, and better 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 lead client source at the onset because they come to me with a, you know, obviously being told to come to me or, or how would they find me? That was one of my things to try to improve this year, you know, and, but I, I got that by looking at the numbers. Mm -hmm. Now I'm kind of curious because we're in, I would say completely different businesses in the sense of one's 
probably there's a lot of overlap, but I think there's a lot of difference. Now, you guys are obviously a, a titanium scientific, you know, and, and I read up a lot on the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of understand it a little bit with not – maybe the first time I went there and I was kind of like, what the heck do you guys actually do? I know there's titanium. Like, what are you actually making? Like, I would sure. Okay, uh, so Norse Titanium uh, started out as an, a research and development company in Norway uh, 10 or 11 years ago now. Um, and, the, and the idea behind it was, can you 3D print titanium? Um, and that was the concept they started with. Now, uh, they actually worked out through the, the, the version one through three of the machine and they tried out different ideas and saw what worked best. And sorry to step back, why, why titanium? Uh, I, I honestly don't know what, Did- what convinced them to go titanium. All I know is that um, initially, if you think about the why of the business, when... The aerospace industry loves titanium. It's lightweight, but it's strong. So, well, when I when I read up on it, that was the reason. It was because the strength to weight ratio was that, one of the best in the like. That's certainly the reason that aerospace loved titanium. But why they started with titanium or versus Inconel or aluminum or anything else? Oh, so there's like other that. options. I, I'm, I'm, yeah. We're, okay, we're, gotcha. When okay. actually looking at Inconel now as a, as a potential possibility and, and a bunch of other stuff, but you know they asked, uh, you know, why do we uh, why do we do that? And so aerospace, they're always looking for cheaper ways to do things. I mean, aerospace is a cutthroat industry. I mean, lots of airlines, lots of manufacturers, they're all competing with each other. And it's all about what their bottom line is. So when you're making a, a, a part, traditional methods mean you have to start with a huge block of titanium and you have to mill out the part with, a, with like, almost like a drill or a cutting edge or something like that. And the more complex the shape is, the longer it takes you and the more, thing, more, more material you have to take away to realize the final shape. Our idea was if you print it so it's as close to the final shape as possible and you only have to take off the last little bit, then instead of buying 15 pounds of titanium to make a one pound part, you can buy three pounds of titanium to make a one pound part. And at the same time, it doesn't take you 24 hours to mill out. It takes you one hour. So all of a sudden, the time and the lead time and the cost is everything else. Now, the actual final part is not any different, but when we can do it faster and more cost-effective and more efficient and um, more, in a more sustainable way, quicker, yeah. then all of a sudden that becomes very, very attractive to, uh, to our customers. So, um, you know, in, in that sort of concept, you're constantly looking at our processes and the way we do business, looking at the numbers of what, our, what we do business in so that we can try and do everything that little bit better and that little bit more efficient. So you want to know where's your waste coming from? Where's your scrap coming from? Um, Where do you have to go back and look at things? And the more you can generate the numbers that tell you where to best apply your effort, and it comes back to that concept, you can't do everything. So you have to take those things that give you the most bang for your buck and that drive you the most distance forward or or get you the most profit or whatever it happens to be. What's your goal in terms of that? So we've gone from, um, you know, we only stood up the North American branch of the company uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and again, brought a lot of really smart people on board. We now have the first building that's operating in full uh, in production, and we're doing a lot of production development with you know Boeing and Airbus and Safran and those kinds of companies. Um, and we're moving forward, at, you know, at a, at a really great pace. Uh, we're opening a new facility, which is going to be a full rate production facility just down the road. Um, and we've gone from three machines in Norway to twelve in the new facility to now twenty plus in the next facility. And you're always looking at um, how do you drive that forward and make it better and more efficient so that you know, your lead time comes down and your cost comes down and everything else. But they're all you know, the same business goals. What it ties back to is um, how do you examine what are the indicators? What, what tells you you're doing a great job? If you decide to make a change, what's going to tell you whether you've been successful or not? Now, for me, 
the, the concept of how to look at a business that way, that started back when I was um, a junior ensign uh, in the Australian military, working on um, a squadron, 816 squadron that ran Seahawk helicopters. And they were the, the frontline anti-submarine helicopter squadron. And we always talked about what we had to get done that day. You know, you had to get so many aircraft out on the line and do so much maintenance and, and everything else. And I, I was very lucky in that I, uh, I had a lot of conversations with a, a, a guy, who, you know, those people who can carry massive amounts of information in their head and just pull it all together. I certainly don't have the ability, but he did. And, and it sort of developed this concept of saying, well, what are, what's the why in that? What's the true purpose of what we do? And if you think about it, this, the actual day-to-day of the squadron at the base had nothing to do with what we were trying to achieve. We were trying to achieve helicopters on ships at sea for a period of time. And if you know that, for example, you need um, uh, six flights permanently at sea, I'm just pulling numbers out of the air here, but if you need six helicopters at sea and you've got 10 helicopters at the squadron, then you need to provide crews to those and you need, they need to fly a certain amount of hours every year. So that means a certain amount of maintenance every year, which means a certain amount of aircraft rotations every year. So if you're feeding that, you know that you've got to provide eight trained pilots a year and eight trained co-pilots a year and you know, 200 trained maintainers at, at certain levels every year. So that tells you how much you have to fly at the squadron, which tells you how much maintenance you have to do. And all of a sudden, everything's feeding into that. You know, have, you know um, how many spares you're going to need, how much consumables you're going to need, how much time frame you're going to need. And we always used to think about it in heavy maintenance because if a heavy maintenance cycle takes six weeks, then everything stacks up into it. But if it takes four weeks, then you can send one out while you're bringing the next one in kind of thing. And it all ties together in such a way that you know how to model the behavior of something as big as 400 people at a squadron and six flights at sea and all of these kinds of things. And you can start to see the numbers and what they tell you and the story that it's telling you. And if you can distill that down to a 30 second look that says, we know that everything's going to stack up in heavy maintenance and they're just going to jam back to back and you're going to have to throw crews at it and extra consumables and extra spares because you can't get through them fast enough. But then you say, all right, well, I've just thrown 30 extra people at it and it didn't get out any faster. So what's that telling me? It's telling me that people wasn't the problem. Something else was the problem. Let's go find the problem. And then we're going to change a bit of behavior and see if that changes the number. So you're always looking for enough data to be able to tell you, I need to make this change. And if I make this change, I think it's going to have this effect. And that's how I'm going to measure this effect. So I know I was successful. But that idea of saying, why am I here? What's my true purpose? What goal am I trying to achieve down the track? And what's the data telling me about that? That's the fascinating, that's the fascinating thing for me, being able to pull all of, the, of that together. So somebody tells me what the business goals are and I can drive my departmental goals into that. And I can, be, I can say, this is what I'm trying to achieve long-term in terms of the business goals. Here's the data that's telling me. And I'm going to make these three changes or I don't have the data to tell me how I'm doing at the moment. So I have to go find a way to get that data. Um, and at the same time, not, al- not overload my people with filling out a bunch of spreadsheets or charts of oh, crap that they don't want to do and they're not going to be enthusiastic about, right? So how do we automate the process? How do we get the data in the cheapest, fastest possible way so that I know that if we want to make a behavioral change, if we want to make a change to the organization, or my boss is telling me we have to make it for long-term business goals, then I know how I'm going to achieve that from day, you know, day to day, month to month, year to year. But being able to pull all of that together and tell that story or even understand the organization in such a way that I can make those changes, that's the challenge. Now, I've always, I was always quality, I've been quality focused for the past five or six years now um, at Platco and then at Norsk. Making the step across so that I understand the business on a different level. Um, I understand um, investor concerns or I understand long-term financial concerns or something like that. 
that's an area which, I mean, I was lacking a huge amount of knowledge. I just didn't have it. So being able to go out and know that that's one of my shortfalls and I need to chase down that knowledge so that I can better scope my day to day to, to meet with the business goals of the organization and my boss and her boss and everything else that becomes the next challenge and the next idea and the next, and the next focus. And, and, and again, that's what keeps it interesting. It keeps it fun. So I think that numbers, not necessarily a data oriented approach. The, the trick is knowing what the data is telling you, but I don't care what business you're in. You have data. I mean, you know, your industry, right? You know, your business, you know, your goals, you know, your tasks, you know, what data you have available. You've just got to work out a way that tells you a story in such a way that you know what next week looks like and next, what next year looks like. Because when you've got those 10-year goals hanging out there and you know you think you've broken it down, how are you going to measure yourself along the way? You know, is it, is it one thing? Because what you measure, you do, right? If I tell you that the most important thing is, uh, is throwing, you know, getting parts out the door and that's all like, what did I read there? Sorry, I was reading about a collections company and the, all of the people in were judged on how much money they recovered every month. And then uh, a woman came along and started her own business where they weren't judged on how much money they were collecting every month. They were judged on how many thank you cards they got. So the idea was she taught them how to go out and build a relationship with the people they were trying to collect money off and, and, and understand their story and see if they could help them find a way. And all of a sudden, the, the money took care of itself because they were 300% better than any other company in the industry at recovering money from people who were having trouble at the time. Um, so do you really know what the KPI, the, the indicator is telling you? Well, well kind of your point there, the, uh, so a couple, a couple things about, I think that tie into that. When you, we talk about number wise, I'm very, I'm number driven because I, again, I, I, it's cliche thing, but numbers don't lie because it's black and white. You see them. Sure. The, the, uh, a couple things though. It's funny cause we say that and then I have. You can't see it, but taped up on my printer. I've had it there for a few years now. It basically states, and I, I, I can't say it verbatim, but it, it basically um, what it means is don't or take basically take care of the people. The numbers will follow. Meaning Richard and, Branson. Yeah, is that what it is? I don't. <laughs> I, I don't so. know what it is. It's 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 a it's a brilliant quote. I okay, love it. so so it's something to the effect basically of. I'm very, especially in our business, is very, you know, it's based on commission. It's like yeah. how much you make is based on sales and stuff like that. Like, I track my numbers because I always want to improve. Kind of mm. the same thing. It's kind of like CrossFit. I want to get heavier lifts, Absolutely. faster times, whatever. But the whole purpose of it is I don't focus on. I've had I've had clients tell me, well, you know, are you you know working for us? If you if we end up buying at ten thousand dollars more, once you make more money, I'm like. It's marginal the amount I would make more, and at the end of the day, I always tell them like, well, if you're not willing to go up to ten thousand, then I don't make that money anyway. So I'm always looking at what's the best for the client. I really could care less. I, I don't even, to be honest, I have no clue how much I'm going to make on any deal ever. Like mm -hmm. it's just like I just, to me, if I can get an accepted offer, it's good. It's what you want, then that's fine. Like and by having that approach, I've been able to grow my business pretty exponentially over the last few years. But it's not. There's nothing on there that's driven by my bottom line. I don't sure, know, I couldn't sure. tell you how much money I'm going to make this year. I could care less. Like I mean, I do obviously for sure. for for living expenses and stuff, but I'm not generate. I'm not working because I wanted. None of the numbers I ever look at is based off my income. It's always based off of 
how many people can I help? And you know, numbers that you've got different measurables yes, and things that tell the success of your, your business yeah. that aren't necessarily the bottom line. Exactly. And it kind of like your thank you cards. Yeah. Like I, I don't track my thank you cards, but guess what I do? I have a bunch of them up stacked up there and I get a bunch stacked up. I keep every thank you card I've ever gotten. And part of it is because it, it's kind of validation of what you do. Sure. But the other thing we talked about, there's certain numbers that I am. What I'm a big believer in not everything ha- there's ROI, but you can't track every ROI of every business, of everything you do in the business. Yeah. And it, it, I'm sure people have seen, take our Kavanaugh shirts, take mm. our Kavanaugh hats. I don't know. We just had St. Plat- Platty's Day this past weekend. <laughs> so I, I, a bunch of people that I know that had my shirt wore it this weekend. And I'm, sure. sh- and I'm encouraging if anybody's listening to this, and I'll, I'll put this out on social media, but this is... This is the perfect week if you're going to wear the Kavanaugh shirts to wear them, um, and especially this uh, St. Patrick's Day falls on a weekend. So, but the cool thing was, what's the ROI of those people wearing the shirts? And all of a sudden, they post it on social media, on their own page. Of course, I'm going to post it, but they post it, people see it, and then they see, they see, they see. I don't know what the ROI of that would be. I do know two hours before you got here, or an hour and a half before you got here, this kid calls me up, and I go, "Well, how, how did you?" He goes, hey, I'm looking to buy a home and I need a realtor. I said, cool, great. Like, I, I love those calls. But I said, hey, how did you how'd you hear of me? Who told you? He goes, well, I've just been seeing all your stuff on, on social media. Mm-hmm. And I've seen like Facebook and things like that. I don't know the kid. But what's cool is that what I'm able to do and project out, that's what I talked about, the snowball effect. Was that happening four years ago when I started? Heck no. But I'm starting to see almost weekly now that this is happening. But it's, it's from con- little efforts constantly over time where I don't know – what my ROI three years ago, two years ago, a year ago by posting a video or doing a, or a thing or saying thank you to somebody or responding to somebody or doing something nice for a client that I had no – or doing something nice or giving information to somebody that is not looking to buy or sell or might not even use me in the future. Mm-hmm. But what's the ROI? Maybe they don't use me but they tell all their friends from now on to use me because I was so helpful. I don't know what the ROI of that is. But I do know that it will be strong once it comes. But so there's certain things I, a very numbers driven person, mm-hmm. but I'm also equally just reliant on just karma, the serendipity of what's going to happen just by me putting forth positive actions and energy out that it's just going to come back hopefully tenfold. But I, I don't do it for, I, I just, I'm a very just, I'd rather exude positivity than negativity, but it will come but you, back. You and, might not be able to measure that. But you can see it when I it can comes feel back it. to you. I, I know, and, I know. And it's somebody there. walks into yeah. your office and says, um, you, "You know, a friend of yours from CrossFit recommended me," or yep. um, "I saw your stuff on social media." You know that the actions you're taking, and as you say, the positivity that you're putting out there, is very much coming back to you because you see it. I mean, you might not be able to measure it and say, you know, fifteen of my clients came from this this particular source, mm-hmm. but you know that. You know, when somebody's walking into your office, you, you get to know your clients, you get to have those conversations. I mean, I can't imagine, I mean, you're a, you're a big part of their life. You're helping them get their home. This is where yeah. they're going to live for a long time. Yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So I can't imagine you'd ever be in that position without, you know, getting to know quite, really quite well, those clients and their interests and their, their goals and pursuits and dreams and all those kinds of things. Yeah. So... I mean, it, it can only come back to you in positive means, can't it? But you, but you could feel it. You could see it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, 100%. And I, which is, I, 
if there was a way that I could 100% track that, I would. But I kind of like the unknown a little yeah. bit. Like yeah, it kind of makes it fun. I look, and I imagine there's a huge amount of unknowns. Yeah. You know, when it comes to real estate, because I mean, it's such a. I mean, there's so many subtlety, subtlety to subtleties to it. Yeah. And I imagine that. Well, for want of a better term, there's almost an art in what you do. Um, there, there is in certain aspects of it. There is for sure. Um, and it and it's about you know responding to a client's needs or or seeing what they might want. I mean. Um, I, I do own real estate. I do own my own house. Um, I was very lucky in that, um, you know, again, a really good friend of mine through CrossFit was, was the one who helped me get that house in the first place. But again, knowing how to nursemaid a nervous Nelly buying his first house in America, um, there is an art form to it. And there is an art form in, in being able to read people and to see people and to see what's in front of you. And again, I don't, I don't have that talent or ability or anything else like that. But the fact that you're successful in what you do and you're growing in what you do suggests that your talents do go towards that. So, um, you know, like you say, I mean, it, it, it may not be, I'm not talking necessarily about, I've always had the opportunity to measure data in hard numbers. Um, not everybody has that opportunity. And, and obviously you, you're not necessarily in that position, but I, I bet you can measure it in your own mind. I bet yeah. you can understand the impact that, you know, your social media presence or your, or the kind of comments you hear um, from, from, you know, I was talking to this guy and he said this about you and, and therefore, you know, it's, it's something that's come full circle. Yeah. Yeah. You've the, got to be able to see that the, and measure well, the, it in some ways. There's a lot that um, I, I, a lot I, I can't measure, but the, the thing like if I, you know, going to a networking event and someone comes up to me to introduce themselves to me, like that's kind of cool because eight years ago, if that was reversed, nobody knew who I was and I was the one going up to people. So yeah. now it's kind of, it's, it's start, but again, it, it's, it's small tidbits. It's not all the time, but it's like a person here, a person there, but you're, you're, it's the validation that I'm like, okay, like I'm on the right path. It's not there. It will never be there, but it's always a building block. But it's interesting, isn't it, what you said before about, um, you know, that karmic effect, that positivity being a force multiplier. Um, yeah. Actually, it might be Colin Powell. I can't even remember anymore, but you go to a networking event and you're not doing it because you want to make a connection. I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't. How do I put this? You go to a networking event or you have this group of incredible friends. I mean, obviously you've had a lot of people on your podcast who are part of the Adirondack Young Professionals. Yeah, good it's crew. It's an incredible yep. network yep. and a great crew that you guys are putting together. Um, and an incredibly talented bunch of people, but you're not necessarily doing a quid pro quo thing, you know, a set of favors. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't go to somebody and say, you know, you're having a conversation about something and you talk about, I don't know what it happens to be, recruiting. Say, so, oh, I know the guy at ETS or... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, Matt Craig, mortgage broker, right? Yeah. Mortgage broker. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also owns his own farm. There you go. Matt Craig, Craig Cass, check him out. Friend of the telecast or podcast. Um, so if, if you're talking about somebody like, you know, you might make a referral to him, but because you know that he shares your values yeah. and he is going to provide a, a quality service that you would hope your clients become part of. And you might not get a sale out of that. You might get something completely different out of that. But at the same time, it's it's developing that network of um, that network of people and, 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 and people around you that, that share your values and share your characteristics and everything else. So you're right that pushing yourself out there in that positive way probably does bring a lot back to you. Well, I think, I think the biggest one we we've always talked, I just had uh, Ryan Lee, who is the, uh, the president of Adirondack young professionals on yep, last yep. week. And uh, what, what was cool about that and what we've talked about was like, I went to the chamber ski day the mm-hmm. other day and I skied with four people. I know all four very well, but it's funny. Like we've just become good friends where I don't think I met anybody at the networking event. It was just more of like, it was fun to go do something that we normally don't get to do. 
all together, which was fun. It was like almost like going on a field trip with your class back, you know. Sure. And sure. Uh, so we kind of got to play hooky for a day and go out and, and have fun. But like those people are good friends. So I don't even look at them at like business. I mean, we we're sitting there just like, you know, busting each other's balls and having fun and having a good day. <laughs> but they're all just good friends of mine that I've met through networking. But I, I mean, yes, would I refer people to them? Of course. But I don't go into that. Like you basically go in like, if you're making friends, that's what that's what you want because that's that's the best, most genuine type of relationship that you can have versus yeah. kind of like a on the on the ground level of like going in and being like, hey, yeah, yeah use this guy, he's good, but I don't really know him that well. Like, I mean, but at that point, you're not uh, you're not referring somebody because you expect to get something back. You're referring somebody because you want that person him. you know it, to have that positive experience yes. and having developed that network mm-hmm. and developed that you know extraordinary group of people around you. Um, you probably have the opportunity to do that on a much wider scale than you did eight years ago. Well, it also lets me help clients better too. Because if somebody says, hey, I got a question on this, well, then I actually know a person that I can contact that I know them personally, not just like, well, let me give you their 1-800 number and call them. Like I can like call the guy up on the phone and be like, hey, can you can you help help this person out? So sure. I mean, there are there are favors that, that will allow me to, in the future for my, my clients, but like a lot of it is just I've made good connections with people that would be like, yeah, sure. We'll, we'll bump you up maybe or help you out here and there. But I yeah. mean, there's, there's always part of that, that, you know, just comes naturally with, with good friends. And I, th- I think we've looked out at least from that group and you've, a lot of those people have been on just because we share interests and they're absolutely good buddies, you know? Yeah. So, and they're good people to talk to. I mean, it, it well, like-minded individuals. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it, it's, it's interesting. We keep coming back full circle on a few of these things. Then you start talking about recruiting and you start talking about, um, you know, what gets you in the door, what gets you hired? Um, how many jobs do you know that people have got because they were recommended by somebody who knew somebody? Yeah. Um, now if somebody comes to me and says, Hey, look, um, you know, this kid, I want to pitch him for a summer internship and, uh, he's doing business. He's not doing engineering or something like that, but I really think you should take a look at this person. Mm -hmm guaranteed I'm going to say, all right, I'll put him in for an interview. I mean, I, you know, if, if I respect the person who's coming to me and saying, hey, I've got something for you. What was the, 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 uh, I don't want to butcher it, but the attitude and aptitude. Which exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That if somebody can, if somebody can judge that ahead of time and it's somebody whose opinion I know and respect, then guaranteed they're going to get a place. Mm-hmm. And even if they're not the perfect fit, even if they're not on paper, exactly what I was looking for, Sometimes out of that interview process or out of that idea, they can show you something that you weren't thinking about or you weren't, um, weren't hearing about and never would have found through a normal recruiting process, never would have found through mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, job postings on a board or an advertisement in the newspaper. It's literally you, know, you talking and getting to know somebody, them understanding what you're looking for and going, you know what, I've got an idea for you. Well, I think it was we, we, uh, we posted a position um, at, our, at our office I think we had eight or nine, and I have I've only posted it once, so like mm-hmm. I didn't want to repost it because I'm like we kind of got out of the nine people that applied, I know eight of them personally, which is kind of weird because you kind of look at it where, you know, one it's like that's I think a little bit of a validation of the culture where you have that many people that would want to come work for you mm-hmm. um, at a position like they're not just random people, they're not people like these are and, and some of these people that I know. You know, I've known for years and, you know, good friends with and well-respected, you know, and, and it's, you know, and obviously I know they would probably be a good position for that, but it's nice that we have options and they're coming to us saying, hey, we would like to work for your company. Maybe, we, you know, we believe in the company or at least 
halfway believe in what you're you're trying to do absolutely what what you're what you're showing so comes back to that shared vision doesn't it yeah and i think that's i i i really didn't focus on that when it first happened but as i started to see them come in i'm like there's there's got to be something to take away from that as you know when that many people who know you personally say hey i want to work with you at your company even some of the people that are coming on as agents or people that i've known before but they're like yeah we really think that I want to work with you or maybe, Hey, I want to get in real estate and maybe it was at a different company, but I know like I really align with what I think that you're trying to do. And that part's cool. Like, cause you've got, you know, you, you project an idea of, of, uh, of a vision of a goal of a, of a future, future success. And it comes back to that, you know, uh, that group networking idea that everybody can get lifted by the, mm-hmm. the tide. So yeah. if we're all doing good things, I'll show it to you later. There's, you just read one of my quotes up there. A rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah, there you go. There That's you a good go. one for the Navy guy right Indeed. here. So there, there you go. go. No, but I mean, it's that concept, isn't it? If, if we can all be part of um, a, you know, a shared vision, a shared goal, we might not necessarily be doing the same things. We might be in completely different businesses. But as part of that, um, you know, as part of the success of the region, as part of the, you know, the, the things that move Plattsburgh forward or you know, your region forward or your group forward or whatever it happens to be, um, people want to be a part of that shared vision. So mm-hmm. I always look at, um, so my wife works at the Strand. She's the deputy director there. And I always look at what they're trying, the, the vision they're trying to bring along, um, you know, classes and shows and, you know, the art gallery openings that always happen, you mm-hmm. know, bringing um, something different to Plattsburgh, um, bringing, uh, you know, um, a different kind of culture, uh, you know, something that was not normally seen or, or something that we want to grow, mm-hmm. um, something that lets college kids and, and, uh, and you know art students explore something they, they might have had to travel for um so you look around at something they, they run the uh, the brown bag sessions um which are kind of like a lunchtime concert session where they get for example uh, the music students from suny plattsburgh in to deliver a concert or they get you know different artists or musicians in to give a just a you know one hour free lunchtime session um, and it always fascinates me the the diversity that you get out of that um, whether you hear opera one week or jazz the next week or, or, or a piano recital the next week. But again, it's that fundamental opportunity to make Plattsburgh the next thing mm-hmm. more. Um, and, and I love Plattsburgh. So don't, you know, I, I don't suggest in any way that it's broken or it needs fixing well, no, or anything it, else like that. Like but you talked about like as a person, but improving the area can always get better. You know, bring something, bring something that everybody yeah. will enjoy. Yep. Um, I mean, it sounds so pretentious to say something like that. And, and, and I'm not sure if I've spelled it out correctly, but, um, but I love the vision they have at the strand. I, I love the places that they're going and I'm, I'm forever fascinated to listen to what my wife's been telling me about, you know, what they've got on next or what the, what the next thing they're planning, whether it's the clay studio or whether it's um, the art classes or, you know, uh, the drama courses that my kids take there. So um, I love the idea of, in, in a way, all of our network contributing to that as part of that network and, and part of multiple networks that, that flow through this place and this town. Um, it's, it's one of the most enjoyable things about, you know, maybe, maybe being a part of that and sitting on the periphery and watching it happen. Um, and as, as someone very new to the, the area, I mean, a lot of people have these networks going back generations. Oh yeah, decades, yeah. Um, and you see some of the family names and, and the people who know each other and are somehow interlinked and related. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's so enjoyable to be a part of that and to be welcomed into that as an outsider and, and to maybe see a, you know, a little bit of the a little bit of the perspective that comes with that. So, you know, I, I truly love living here and I truly love being a part of that. Um, but it's always fascinating to me the next the next thing that crops up as part of that, whether it was, you know, through CrossFit or the Strand or work or, 
you know, whatever it happened to be. I mean, I, I, I got into refereeing rugby over here once I'd moved over here and, and <laughs> did a lot of travel. And, for the, uh, the college? Uh, not just for the college here, but I, I did it over in Vermont. And, oh, there's um, a big one in Saranac Lake too. Yeah, I've, I've refereed down there a couple of years and, and um, you know, on my, you know, my body decided, you know, my mind was writing checks. My body couldn't cash and I played there one year, which was a really <laughs> bad idea. I don't recommend that to anybody. Um, you know, my, my playing days are, are far, far behind me and, and probably should have never been thought about, let alone tried again. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a fascinating, again, it comes back full circle to this, the idea that this area is so vibrant and things that you can do. And I, I truly love being a part of it. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Um, I, so a c- couple things I, I, since we, we kind of, I think we met, I'd say met through CrossFit. Yeah. Um, I actually met your wife before I met you. You mentioned that. So I met you can tell the story. Gina um, in her first ever CrossFit competition, um, which was Wadtoberfest at North Country CrossFit back in 2000. I, I don't even was, know what year it yeah, was. Yeah, it was probably 14, 2014. And um, she made the final. Uh, and she, I think, surprised herself in doing that. And I was her judge for the final. <laughs> And she, uh, she gave me this look like, holy hell, what have I got myself into? Um, and, and I think um, we both, you know, she said, this is my first time in a final. I said, great, this is my first time judging a final. And, and we went sort of from there. And um, God, she put up some numbers that day. It was, it was really quite incredible to watch, especially when she'd only been doing CrossFit, I think, for three months or something at that yeah, point. Yeah, I, 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 the one thing that I've learned that I, I can tell you 100% how she got there was she's the most competitive person you'll ever meet, <laughs> um, bar none. And I think she, you could, that could have been her first day there and she would have known there was a competition. She would have somehow made her way into the finals knowing that there was a, a title or a win on the line. Yeah. So I think she did it through just sheer competitive will. <laughs> did not quit. Like, uh, you know, and, and I'm always... I'm always amazed by people who have just that sheer drive to, to push through on something like that. And, and, and you see it a lot with, I mean, you see it a lot with sport in general. Yeah. Um, yep. uh, but, uh, but yeah, then I think we met, um, I started going to, to CFP. Um, and I think that's probably when we first met. I, I, th- I just, rem- yes, no, no, I think you're right. I think the, f- I don't even know the first time I met you or which one we were doing. We might've been doing your, what was the hero wad that we did? Ah, that wasn't they, the first yeah. time I met you, but I mean, that was like no, they, coming in and we had the flag hanging. Yeah. So the hero award we do is the 25th of April is Anzac day, um, which is Australia's Memorial day. Mm-hmm. Um, it stands for Australia and New Zealand army Corps, And there's a, there's a long history to it going back to world war one, but that was always the day where more than any other time in Australia, we, um, we remember those who sacrificed the ultimate in service of their country. So the first CrossFit wad that was ever named after an Australian was a, a, a wad called Wood, as in W-O-O-D, which was named after a, a young commander who was killed in the Middle East. Um, and it was the, a bit like Murph, it was the wad we did every year on Anzac Day. Um, and I sort of got out here and uh, it was something I'd always done, um, even if it was down to you know, just a couple of a modified version. Yeah. I, I think the first year I did it, there was a couple of really close friends who stood up and said, no, we're doing it with you. And, and I think there was, I think there was three of us who did the water. Um, and it was, I wasn't in much shape at that point. Um, and it was just gut wrenching to get through it. And I got dragged through it by these guys who I will be forever grateful that, you know, they, they took it out with me that day. But, but in the following years, every time I turned up at a gym on Anzac day and said, look, you know, this is, this is me, this is what I'm doing 
guaranteed there'd be a bunch of people who would just jump in and say, yes, we're doing it with you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I sort of developed this tradition of bringing in the Australian flag and highlighting what the world was and what it meant to me. And then having everybody sign off on the flag that it's, day. It's not an what, what flag is it, though? Not the, okay, so the one that's hanging in CFP is actually what's called the Australian White Ensign, which is an Australian flag, but with a white background. Yes. And that's the Navy flag. Okay, that, that's what I thought. Okay. So, yep. so that one was, um, and again, it was just, you know, and people coming out of the woodwork to, you know, um, basically recognize what it was as a wad to me um a bit you know like i say a bit like murph is to americans i mean it's it's a very yep. it's a very special day and a very especially for anybody who'd served or yep. anybody who's served in uniform or or anybody who'd been um i mean look don't get me wrong like the 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 partners of those military people out there i think have a tougher job sometimes than any of us mm-hmm. ever had in the military and being able to recognize all of all of those contributions that were made to service of your country whatever country that happened to be um, and people just literally coming out of the woodwork to introduce themselves, to recognize what it was and to be a part of that for the day um, was just an, un- it's always been amazing about the CrossFit community that they would be willing to step up and do that for somebody they barely knew mm-hmm. um, and getting to know a lot of people as a result. So, um, you know, I think I'd been at CFP for a month when it happened and, and I was, you know, a bit, you know, I think I sort of, uh, I sort of said, look, I'm, I'm going to do this. Is it okay on a Saturday morning? And immediately had like eight people turn around and say, yes, we're doing it with you. That's what we're scheduling. That's what that we day. did that day. So, yeah. yeah, it was, it was fantastic. Um, it really was. Was it April 25th? April 25th. Get, get a hold of me. I'll do it. What, <laughs> what day does that fall this year? Do you do it on the, obviously on the 25th? Uh, we usually do it on floating, the, floating but occasionally day. we'll do it on, on like a weekend if, if, it, if oh. it fits better with the gym time. L- let me know. I'll do it. I, I remember it being kind of painful. So I'll, I'll, yeah, it's, it's painful and long. It's a chipper. So it, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's running and it's some burpee box jumps burpee and, box thrusters jumps and, and thrusters and sumo high pull deadlifts. And the, the killer yeah. is that because it's five rounds and there's a minute rest every round, it's like, well, oh, that's right. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, you're standing there just waiting to go thinking it's, this is a death yeah, one of those are the hardest ones. So, um, but like I said, the, I'd come from a rugby background. I'd played rugby for a long time. Um, and that team environment, um, was something that I always loved. Um, I, I played other sports as well. I played baseball and a few other things like that, but, um, but I, I found myself over here missing that camaraderie, I suppose, missing that, that sort of shared suffering environment. Yeah. I suppose you could call it. Um, and I had, uh, I'd started refereeing rugby when my body started to give out you know, probably at about 30 or something like that and, and refereed at a reasonable level, level in Australia, but then came out here and found that I was, um, uh, you know, traveling a lot and going to some really funky games. So I ended up, uh, I refereed the final of the uh, Ivy League Cup down at Dartmouth. That was Dartmouth versus really? Harvard. Um, I did the Division One semifinal between Penn State and Waterbury in rugby. Um, <laughs> there's, some, there's some weird and interesting games like that, which were just, again, that, that you, you, I think as a foreigner, you don't fully understand what college sports means until you can be a part of something like that. And it, it's just at a different level. I mean, it's it was it was quite bizarre to be a part of. Yeah, I think they. Someone told me that that the basically the equivalent of college sports in America, like when you talk, especially you talk like football down in the south mm. and things like that, is like the equivalent of English football. Oh yeah. So we're like basically like your your home team is like, your that's your thing. Like yeah. I mean, I obviously like we take like the like I, I like the Giants in football. Sure. Like, but if I had a team like that was in my hometown, that's much more passionate than a team that's five, six hours away. Even though I'm a diehard Giants fan, if you take, you know, a college town and you're, 
you know, Alabama and yeah. Alabama's smack dab in your town or, you know, and then Auburn comes to play. Yeah. It's kind of like the same, I think, when you have like Man U versus Liverpool. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. So, and and the, 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 the passions and the depths that run with those kinds of games were... It's a lot of history. And, it was just amazing. Like, I mean, I, I'd showed up and I'd done, you know, finals of, of, you know, sports in Australia where you'd probably get, I don't know, maybe a couple of thousand people showing up. That's crazy. And then, and I mean, that was, that was like the grand final and, yeah. and that was like a bunch of games. And then I showed up to the, the Penn State game at Waterbury and they were bussing in supporters and there was a band and they played the national anthem and there must've been, I don't know, a few thousand people at least. And these people were going mental on the sidelines. It was incredible, just the volume of noise. And I'm sitting there looking at this going, this is rugby. Like this isn't like football or basketball or any of the massive sports. This is rugby up at Waterbury College. Like, I mean, yeah, I get it's D1, but... Was this what's rugby seven or eleven? Fifteen. Oh, see, yeah, there you go. That's that, that's the American for you. Um, actually, what I a couple of things I wanted to ask you, which I think ties back to we're talking about leadership. Um, I know there's a good. I think it's a book about is it the All Blacks? Yep. And I haven't read it, but I it's out there. I'll have to get it. If you know the title, I'll, I'll pick it up after. Um, but the other thing that I've talked, you talked about like culture and and uh, I, I, oh, it's a was a book called Getting to Us, mm-hmm. which is by um, Seth Davis, who's a sports writer. Okay. And the same thing. They went through a bunch of different um, s- bunch of different coaches about how they got their teams. And, and like we're talking like Coach K, mm-hmm. Jim Beheim, um, you know, the, these... You'll forgive really, the blank look on my face at the moment. Okay. Presumably. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, they, but basketball, I mean, these are, these are not just basketball, but there's other sports, sure. sports guys. But you think of like coaches that had... You know, like like Phil Jackson, or you talk about like Joe Torre, or you talk about these guys that have managed at the highest level that mm-hmm. have just had like Coach K's perfect example. Like sure. Duke's a powerhouse, you know, and um, G- Gino or Ar- Oriema Ar- Ar- from a UConn women's basketball. Like you take these people that have had this longevity of success. Like, how do you study them, and how do you get down to like what ultimately is how do they become successful mm. and I, I find that there's a huge parallel between sport and business oh definitely and i think uh, mark cuban's the one that talks about the sport of business mm-hmm. as an actual thing um which i've listened to that before too and it's really the the kind of idea and i, I look at business as almost being a sport like mm-hmm. i'm competitive not necessarily with like you know peers and things like that but my, my own self which is how i always was how i am in crossfit like i'm Absolutely. always just trying yeah. to get myself better but I find like reading books like that and you know, I like, I like reading or I like learning about successful people. So when you look at a lot of like, you know, the things up there, sports, it's, it's people from history. I got Da Vinci's up there. I got mm-hmm. Ben Franklin. I have, um, one of the new books that just came in was a book on Mark Zuckerberg, which, you know, and I'm reading one about Snapchat. Like I find people that are just very good in different realms, like obviously 1500, 1700s, you know, recent uh, memory. You know, it's just kind of finding what makes them successful. Like what, and a lot of it is very much just like consistently small things done, or small things done consistently over a long period of time. Which mm-hmm. it's not like any one thing. It's always just these little baby steps, which is what I try to try to emulate. But it's fun. It's kind of cool to see how they did it in their own like their own perspective field. So I don't know if have you read any or or looked at any or studied any kind of like sports figures because I find like being a head coach Absolutely. is like running a team probably at one of the highest levels, you know, I'd read, but so one of my first encounters with American sports was actually reading Moneyball. And again, that, that tied into the big data yep. concept. Yeah. And, yep. and so, you, you know, you read about some, um, you know, what they've done with the A's, especially in a league where 
you know, money makes such a difference. Yep. You can, I want to, I don't want to say buy championships, but you know, payroll helps. Yeah. Payroll helps versus a sport like, uh, American football salary capped. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, lots of trade. You can only spend so much on free agency. So then you start to look at those successful teams over the years, whether it was the, you know, the 49ers back in the day or whether it's the Patriots now or whether it's, you know, some of those successful, those coaches who wherever they go year after year, whatever they're given, they seem to manage to squeeze out so much more mm-hmm. than any other coach could do. Um, and, you know, maybe college programs are different because a successful program will always a- a- attract the best players or something like that. But, um, you know, you've you, you referred to the All Blacks and the All Blacks are just like the dynasty of, of world rugby. I mean, any day you can beat the All Blacks is a great day. I mean, they, they literally painted uh, the, the river in Chicago green the day that um, Ireland beat the All Blacks in Chicago right before the wow. Cubs won the World Series. It was the first time they'd ever done it. It was just this monumental game where Ireland just played out of their skins and played all over the All Blacks and beat them. Um, and you could have it, ri- you could have written your own ticket. All Blacks is the New Zealand team. The right? New Zealand team. Gotcha. Now, rugby in New Zealand is a religion, but at the same time, um, they seem to just find amazing players. Like all of the best sportsmen in New Zealand will eventually gravitate to rugby because it's, it's the premier sport. Mm-hmm. And some will go to other sports, but it's rugby. Now you look at England and they've got a player base 10 times the size of New Zealand, um, but they still manage to churn out these championship teams that can just, that just have that culture of winning and that culture of innovation and development. And occasionally you'll get a team that comes along like the Wallabies, uh, the Australian rugby team, instead of the early 90s that can do something a little bit different, can innovate a little bit differently, find a better way to win, but it's, it's finite. And eventually the All Blacks catch up and the, eventually the All Blacks did a little bit better. Um, and it was it was this long-standing joke that when uh, you know the, the, they asked the New Zealand Prime Minister, you know there was almost a parliamentary inquiry when they got kicked out of the World Cup in the quarterfinals or something like this, and he joked that um, when the All Blacks were doing well, he always wanted to be the All Black captain. When the All Blacks were doing badly, he wanted to be the Prime Minister in New Zealand. I mean, it was mm-hmm. you sort of see something ingrained in the culture there, but it, that, that can't be the only answer. I mean, it can't simply be that it's the premier sport in New Zealand. There has to be something more to that. So it's always fascinating when you look at um, what's, what's the coach that came up with the West Coast offense out in San Francisco. Uh, you know the guy I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and, um, and somebody will remind me down the track. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I read a study on him and it was taking, you know, uh, you know, how did he take Joe Montana? Great quarterback, amazing quarterback, mm-hmm. not the strongest arm in the world, but could just, you know, patent the defense, uh, sorry, patent the offense beautifully to get the most out of what he had. And then he traded away Joe Montana and brought Steve Young along and still managed to get the same thing mm-hmm. out of it. And if you look at his college record, he'd managed to do the same thing every time. Take a bunch of um, what on paper looked like a mediocre team and produce championships out of that. Yeah. It's like, it's like the Patriots now. Yeah, exactly. How do you, how do you, I mean, it, it can't be down to one guy. Look, I, I get the fact that the quarterback is really important to the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like so many of the parts, no matter what he had available, whatever lineman he had available, whatever wide receivers he had available, um, he didn't have the best guy at every position. I mean, he had some great guys, don't get me wrong, but he still managed to produce championship teams year after year after year. There's got to be something more to that. There's got to be something about him in his mind and the way he puts together a coaching staff or the way he leads a team or the way he gets more out of an average player so that someone who was average anywhere else suddenly becomes a championship player under him. I mean, how does that work year after year? Yeah, I don't know. And I, I, I think, um, 
I think it does come down with the why, and it comes down with the, I think the why, but then it also comes down with the passion around the why. Sure. Um, I think you need both. I mean, you could have the passion, but if you don't really have direction, I think, mm. I think it, you, you know, you could end up hitting the, the road or hit the end pretty quick. Same thing. If you have the why, but there's really like, you might be, you might have this great idea and it, you know exactly what you want to convey, but if you, or I shouldn't say that, you know exactly what you want, but you can't convey it to the rest of the team or the group or not, not passionately enough for them to get excited about it. Then sure. I think you also run the risk of, so I think you need to blend the two. So you take someone like, um, you know, you kind of take like these tech companies, you know, yeah. Like, what's the why of the tech company? Like, what's the why with, you know, I think the, the perfect example everybody kind of points to is always like Steve Jobs. Like, he comes from this p- position where Microsoft was by far the most dominant player. And here's Steve Jobs at this little company. And he was like, I, you know, whatever his why was, which I've, I think it was to dent the universe, but it was like one of these things where he was crazy enough and, and had the vision. And, and I don't know much more about the guy, but he obviously was able to pull something cool off in, in yeah. the sense of now we're all, I mean, I'm a religious Apple fanatic and user. I mean that, but you know, how come, or why do I buy? And this is, this is something we thought about. Like why brand is so important. Like why do I buy an Apple product? Why is Apple better than Samsung? It might not be. Yes. Mm-hmm. My wife, she hates Apple, but for some reason, if I see the little Macintosh with the, with the core bitten out of it, then I just think that it's a quality product. Sure. Same thing with like Nike sneakers or whatever it may be. So, but behind that, I don't know if you've ever watched or did you ever read a uh, shoe dog by Phil Knight? No. Um, he was the founder of, of Nike, okay, yep. but like talk about a full circle. And what was funny about that book, I, I listened to it. It was, it was a long, long listen, but it was, it was good was. He started out with nothing, and mm-hmm. I kind of like this like rags to riches kind of thing. Like where he, we started out with, you know, selling Japanese sneakers, mm-hmm. and had no money, took out loans. I don't know if he ever went bankrupt, but it was like very much on the verge of it. And he just kind of kept building and building. They kind of talked about, you know, what he what he did and and what he was able to build up. But was was funny about it was the entire book kind of builds up, builds up, builds up, and he's talking about him building this company. But they Mm -hmm. never really get to the point where, you know what Nike is, but you never really get to the point where they really dive into how how popular he got because it was very much the the, – his path to get to this major company. Mm. And what was funny was at the very end, meaning they weren't like, oh, he was hanging out with all these celebrities and blah, blah, blah. At the very end, he gets to this kind of like an afterward section, which I'm going to – Spoil, spoiler alert. So if you guys want to read it, don't, whatever. But they get to the last section and it basically brings it to present day time. Sure. And at one point they were talking, there was three things that stood out when they were kind of talking about the influence of Phil Knight. They said at one point he was at a movie theater, I think in like Florida. And the two guys he was standing with were Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. They all had a house down there and they all, for some reason, like ran into each other at this movie theater and like, People were passing by and wanting pictures with Bill um, or uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, mm-hmm. and you have Phil Knight standing there. And nobody knew who the heck he was, <laughs> and uh, it was just kind of funny because they're just joking around about it. And then they ended up talking about like how this guy's kind of like you wouldn't really suspect who he is, kind of deal, unless you mm-hmm. really knew him. Then they go, and then Phil's. It kind of went into Phil's voice telling the story about like, yeah, I was basically on the 18th green when Tagger won in '97. I was in the front row at. Michael Jordan's father's funeral. I was at like then they start bringing into perspective about 
how big this guy had gotten, especially amongst that field where, you know, 20 chapters ago or whatever it was, you were talking about this guy barely making ends meet selling this, this shoe from Japan that nobody wanted to buy. And he was up against Adidas <laughs> and all this thing. And it was just kind of funny how like full circle you watch this guy progress up throughout the book, but they never really got into like his culture or not his cultural, but his like his, uh, his basically longevity or why he was doing it or his, um, his impact on the sports world until that last chapter hit. And they just started talking about who he was, you know, how he's got like, you know, he was at this person's house for dinner, like Thanksgiving one year for like, and you're talking, you're not talking like these no names. You're talking the cultural or the sports icons of the, icons the generation. Of the and uh, it's just kind of, it's cool to see that. But isn't that fascinating? I mean, a guy who, who comes from literally selling, you know, no brand Japanese sneakers, what kind of strength of character and vision did that man have to have to Incredible. drag everybody along for the mm-hmm. ride? And you think about, um, I mean, all right, athletes to some degree, you know, they're going to take the sponsorship for a payday. But do you think, you know, a guy uses, I mean, take Tiger Woods. Did he use Nike clubs for that long if they were crap? Of course not. Mm-hmm. Um, do that many athletes go with Nike because they I mean, it can't just be the payday. There's got to be something else sitting behind that, whether it's the vision or the idea or that that shared focus or value, I don't care what it is. Yeah. What kind of what kind of vision sits in that man's head that he can take a company like that on a twenty year? I mean, you don't just stumble into it. It's not just luck. No, no. He had to have he had to have something within himself, an idea that sat in his head that said, maybe it maybe it was just the year. I I just want to you know get to the next sneaker or something like that. But over the years, that's where it took him. And it took him to the absolute pinnacle of a sports, what, what a sports company can be. Well, yeah, now, now he's, I mean, you think about it, he... I mean, I what think, is it, like the, one of the top 10 recognized brands in the world or something? Yeah, and I think he's still based out of Oregon. Yeah. And they talk about like his affiliate affiliation with Oregon School, the Oregon sure. Ducks, and it's all Nike. And if you talk about, you know, basically what he's given to that college, like I think a lot of things are named after Phil Knight at the college. or Or somebody, a son, something or money, something right? within... <laughs> Within that realm, but um, it, it's really cool just how, how the, he's been able to grow this company from selling shoes out of the back of a car to yeah. to Nike. Like, I'm wearing Nikes right now. There's, but, I mean, you know, to be hanging on the edge like that, to be staring down the barrel, you know, getting loans from wherever you could, staring down the barrel of bankruptcy, all of those kinds of things. To still have the presence of mind to be able to stand in the middle of a storm like that and go, I know where I'm going. Yeah. I, I can't even fathom what, what that kind of thing takes. I mean... Those stories are the most amazing, aren't they? It's not that you know they started out somewhere and, and just took it a little bit better or, or something like that, but but they genuinely came in and turned around a business mm-hmm. um, or you whole know, industry, you know, or or in that case, an industry. I mean, you know, you think about uh, you know all of the all of the great innovations of life. Um, you know, whether it was Apple and they decided you know we're going to make a phone without a keyboard, mm-hmm. um, or it was uh, ESPN that came along and said we're going to do nothing but sports. Mm-hmm. Um, you know just that idea that somebody had that vision for and was able to throw together. I mean, you know, I mean, ESPN's part of every, every cable package there is these days, Mm -hmm. but that started up from, you know, just an idea. Let's, let's have a sports channel. Yeah. Really? A 24 hour new sports channel. Like how's that going to work? Like, what's the other thing too? Now you're starting to see things like, um, just with the time with the internet, like, you know, ESPN, is losing a lot of market share to barstool sports, but they're not first anymore, are they? ESPN. Yeah, I, I don't. They were first for a long time. Yeah, and they were and smarter I, than everybody for a long time. But, but I think as things change, and we talk about like, but they're not first anymore, are they? 
I don't know. Who so is? We, we talked about first, smarter, or cheat, right? So yeah. they were first when it came to cable sports. Oh, yes, yes. And everything right, else. Yes, yep. But now Barstool are working out a way to package package for today's present content in a different culture i love barstool i mean i I listen to a bunch of different podcasts yeah um but you know it's it's they're now first because Mm -hmm. that's the new idea and that's the thing that is that is reaching out to what people want um and espn haven't necessarily taken that step yeah and it's it's just the the consumer product and things are done differently and and i i just think your people like the the real successful people you have to adapt you have to change you have to know your end consumer you have to know where the attention lies, you have to know how people naturally, or I say naturally, but are reacting as 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 they evolve. Yeah, and as our, as our culture evolves, and uh, but I get to consume the content I want now. Well, that's so, it. So it was before I would consume the content that you gave to me. Yeah. Now I'm consume. I'm looking for the things that interest me. So I'm looking for the books I want to read and the podcasts I want to hear. Mm-hmm. And if you don't capture me in the first podcast, I'm not going to listen again. Well, um, well, that and. I don't, I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait a week to watch a TV show. I want to binge it. Well, that's it. Yeah. So. And, and then I'm talking about like that book I saw the other day. I was, I was sitting down and whatever happened, saw something and I'm like, that would be a great book. Literally on my phone within 30 seconds, I had it ordered. Like, but that's the, the culture we're in now. It's like, I, I don't, it's not like, Hey, I'm going to put it on my wish list and maybe go down to the bookstore next week and pick it out. Like it was just like, Okay, I'll see it in two, three days. And mm-hmm. sure enough, came in two, three days, and I had it sent right to my door, and I didn't have to leave. Or, or even the seat. instantaneously, if you're getting it on a Kindle these days. Well, and that I mean, too. I mean, I like I said, I, I still haven't, I haven't given up the uh, the paperback yet or the the actual pages. But I love books to a certain degree, and, and you know, so much of they take up like, space. But that's, well, my mother was a voracious reader. I mean, re, just is addicted to the written word. But even she's transferred across to a Kindle um, these days, or a paperwhite, I think in her yeah. case. Um, and it's. Don't get me wrong, I love books, but being able to travel with the Kindle, and I, I had I'd done huge amounts of travel for work, uh-huh. and being able to know that you know I'm, I'm halfway through a book and it references something else, so I'm going to go buy that book later and, and know that I can instantly find it, and it's not going to be out of print, or it's not going to be not available in the bookstore or something like that. Um, as much as I love the idea of, of the physical and what I can touch and everything else, at the same time, um, in some ways, the convenience of life makes that so much better, I can learn that much faster. Well, I... Th- I- You'll laugh because this this is where I the Kindle I should have. So we go down to we went to Florida a couple weeks ago, and I brought three books with me. Three books is a lot of weight when you put it in your carry on, and it's, it it's really called, is. But it was one where I was like, I'm going to be halfway done one, and then I'm going to read the short one, and then I'm going to be starting my third one, which which I did exactly what I planned on doing. But I probably had five pounds worth of books where I could have just had probably like a half pound Kindle sitting there. Now, this, this is probably where you're going to you know, call me a heretic or something like that. So I started out with the entire IMS. I had the phone, the iPad, the MacBook, the full bit. And I was, I was a devoted Apple follower. And then I, I started a new job and they said, we can't tie in Macs with the network because of security and a bunch of other stuff. And so they handed me a Microsoft Surface. And that was my first time ever using a tablet, um, a tablet computer. I thought, you know, how good can this be? But then it starts to tie everything else in. So it ties in with the Samsung and it ties in with the, the Surface. And then, you know, I dock my Surface. So now I've got three screens op- operating. But then the software all ties in together. So I'm running OneNote, Outlook, um, Power BI, and a bunch of other stuff. But then I can take voice notes on my phone, which then transfer into my OneNote. And it was all about the way we, the way we get connected and the way we the way we eliminate some of the waste. So I, ne- I never had to go, you know, all of a sudden I learned how to use OneNote, for example, and I never had to go back trawling through an old notebook for looking for a written set of notes on a meeting that I had six months ago. 
like it was instantly searchable and instantly available. And, and that was all of a sudden a very powerful tool. So it wasn't necessarily that um, I still love to be able to write because it's, uh, I find I formalize my notes really well when I'm actually writing them down, mm-hmm. but being able to do that on a tablet that then translated it and made it searchable by text. Yeah. Those, those kinds of ways that somebody had almost predicted the way I was going to think and the way I was going to work from study of the environment or something like that and literally pitched a product that worked ideally for what my business life was like. That so, was the thing that migrated me away from Apple. So, so are you all Samsung now? Uh, Samsung, Microsoft. So now I run, uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. So I'm running, I'm running Microsoft, the Surface with the, the, you know, the pen and the Note something or other. So I'm, I'm sure that they're all great products. I just have, I just, I've been using Apple since like 2012. Part sure. of it is I don't want to relearn it. Yeah, yeah, when I go buy When I go buy a new Apple phone, the learning curve is about an hour, if that. And that's yeah. just because some of the icons look a little bit different. But the, so I mean, that that's that's pretty much the same where I haven't jumped. But the one thing is I use Google Calendar. Yep. Because it syncs up better. Sure. Then the Apple one does, but the, the Google one's better, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Google Maps I use. I don't use Apple Maps. Sure. There's certain Google products that I, and I, I, I say Google. I mean, obviously, it's different than Microsoft and stuff. But it that stuff syncs up better for me in certain aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still things I really like about the Apple. Sure. So but- I'm kind of like I'm, I'm all over. <laughs> but I, if you would have told me a year ago that I'd be using a couple, couple of these, then I would have probably said no. But now I'm slowly – I don't know if I'd give up <laughs> Apple, at least not yet. But – it's, no, it's, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, though? So you're looking at the way you work and every, in, in everything that you do in life, I don't care what it is, um, someone is going to be able to give you an opinion on, on something, you know, whether it's a review, whether it's, you know, whether it's Yelp, whether it's, you know, parenting is a classic example. Somebody will come to you and say, you should be doing this. And, you know, over time, I gradually worked out that it's got to work for you. I mean, like doing something like strict scheduling bedtime might work for one family. Mm-hmm. but it just doesn't work in the environment that, that we might work in. And yeah. it's the same thing. I mean, Apple products and Apple things work for you and it makes you efficient and it makes you better. That's great. Mm-hmm. So keep doing it. Yeah. But just because it works for me doesn't mean it necessarily works for something else. So, you know, I, I eventually uh, got around to, you know, teaching my team um, how to use, you know, tasking on Outlook or, or how to use OneNote, um, tagging on OneNote to, to recognize notes and, and link all of these programs together. Um, so, you know, you tie in SharePoint, you tie in teams, you try in a bunch of other things to make you more efficient and communicate better. But what I always say is like, here are the 14 tasks or the 14 notes that I have on, on Outlook to, that make me better. Try them all out, but then pick the ones that work for you. Because if it doesn't work for your mindset, then what the hell's the point? I'm yeah. just trying to, I'm trying to box you. And, and the last thing you want to do is box somebody, right? You don't want to tie them into your box and you don't want to tie them into you know, something that works for you just because it works for you. I mean, certain things, yes, you've got a structure, but at the same time, you know, aren't we going to hire people because they make us better? You know, if, we, it, if yeah. we hire smart people and give them the room for their ideas, collectively we get better, right? And I yeah. mean, all of these things keep tying full circle. Uh, and I love that. So, you know, when you say I'm an Apple user and yeah, it works for you. So why the hell would you change? Yeah. Right. Unless you can find something that says, definitively i have a reason now my reason for changing was literally work handed me this computer and says you're using that yes okay i'm using that um and so i had to work it out but i didn't have a choice and all of a sudden i worked out my phone didn't tie with my computer and that was frustrating me so i changed phones i I think i think if i had to switch it would be a like a full-on switch cold turkey just flying right into it i think you'd have to i think you'd have to because that's the reason i use like to be honest i don't even use an ipad i have one 
I think I, to actually use it, besides watching maybe streaming the Masters on it while I'm working on, on, <laughs> on in about a month from now, that's pretty much all I use it for. I don't. I, I probably should be better, but the Apple phone, yep. the Apple computer, to me, just sync up nice. I it, I can do it with Microsoft, but if I was to switch, I think it would be I would switch both, and I would go straight up this, whatever that version, Samsung, whatever, and and yeah. whatever the the HP computers at the time. The Surface was the first time I'd had a, a computer in the palm of my hands that I could write on and I could read a book on and everything else that was every bit as powerful as the desktop I could buy. So when you... You travel often? I do. This is one of the things I'm, I'm fascinated. I don't travel a ton. Like I don't travel for like work out of... I mean, mm-hmm. I travel locally, but not... Is being efficient packing because <laughs> I, I know i kind of wanted to, i always want to ask coda this too because i know he travels a lot and, he does and, he does but it's the idea of like how do you travel one I, w- I would assume the last thing any of you guys ever want to do is check a bag so a lot of it's am i wrong on that uh, so because so i just i, I just I, have I, the idea I, that i would always want to have a carry-on <laughs> and i'd want to try to be as efficient and roll my clothes and have the kindle and, and like yeah no i i understand what you're saying so i have traveled like a minimalist kind of thing i have traveled my entire career like from the time I left home and even before then a little bit, I've, I've always traveled. Um, so when I first got a job in the military um, at Directorate General, it was, I was traveling every week. So I'd leave on a Monday and come back on a Friday. And I would, so that was what I'd call weekly running. Um, other jobs would be, you know, I'd, I'd disappear for three weeks or you'd go on a deployment or something like that. So you were always packing for a different environment. Um, at my last job, I was going to Saudi Arabia every two months, I guess, and having to stay there for, for eight to 10 days. And what I found was that, um, yeah, check, checking your bag, it's, uh, it sucks. But sometimes you have to do it. You need equipment or you need tools or something like that. But I found that in most cases, um, I could get away with a carry-on for a week. So Monday to Friday, I could do a carry-on. But the more you can shrink down what you need for that week, the better. So you, all, you know, I always carried one change of clothes in my carry-on because guaranteed they'd lose your luggage somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I always made sure I had something that I could literally do as much work as possible on. So my MacBook tended to go in the, the, the checked bags, but my iPad always stayed with me because I could still take notes. I could still read my documents. I could still do those kinds of things. And then you, you sort of pick up the little bits and pieces like you roll your clothes. Um, or you, um, you know, you make sure you have a really basic toiletries kit near the bag. Mm-hmm. So whichever one gets lost, you're okay. Um, and then the little things that make travel that much easier. So I found that um, when I was traveling all the time, um, you know, you start to upgrade your, your frequent flyer privileges and the ability to go into a club, grab a quick bite to eat, um, have a shower, those kinds of things. Um, know that you've got a car waiting for you at the airport or something like that. Anything that makes that travel just that little bit easier and that mm. little bit faster and gets me home to my wife that little bit quicker so I can be relaxed when I get home instead of completely strung out, that's always going to help. Um, but there is, there is definitely, uh, you know, certain people can travel. Um, some people get a bit stir crazy. Um, my, I've been lucky in that my, my travel has always been somewhat different. Um, but yeah, there, there definitely is a personal style and an art to packing. Like I will never ever get on a plane without like an iPad or a, or something. Well, the, the three things that I always find tough with packing, there's packing for like vacation. Like mm-hmm. if I go down to Florida, I can pack very minimally because I'm wearing the same style of clothes every single day. It's pretty much like just loungewear kind of thing. Um, 
But if I travel for like business or something, because this is my problem. You have clothes for different outings. So the one that thing that kills you is like, I'm going for a week, but there's like a night that I got to dress up. There's a night and then that gets crazy. Shoes, mm-hmm. which are footwear. And then if you have like, obviously like you have to dress up, you have your jackets and things like that. So then you go from, to me, being able to carry very minimal to now, like if I can just wear like this kind of clothes, I'd be fine. But if I am have to dress for occasions, mm-hmm. like when I travel, I usually like, like if I go to Florida, I pack sandals mm-hmm. and I wear these sneakers that I want to work out in on the plane. So I have two pairs. I have a pair of sneakers, but I have sure. no I have no dress clothes. I have no dress shoes. I have no anything like that. So, but then that, that probably just goes into, you know, check your bag. But I'm always fascinated because I know to some people wear their jackets. They wear their, like their dress outfit on the, I think they wear it on the plane and then we'll just worry about the dry cleaning and, and ironing later. Um. So I haven't hacked this. The, I don't ever have no, to, but the, I'm always fascinated by people that can really pack well. <laughs> the outfit that I always carry, uh, khaki pants, uh, blue business button-down shirt, um, brown belt, brown shoes, um, a jacket, and a tie. That will always go in as an outfit because that outfit you can customize to just about any occasion. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's casual at a, a, at a, um, a restaurant... You know, the button down on the khakis will do you. If you're dressed up in a business meeting, even if you didn't have the formal, you know, dark suit or something like that, the tie and the blazer will get you by. Mm-hmm. Even if you were going out to like, you know, if you, even if you were going to a wedding, mm-hmm. literally the, the, the nice jacket and the tie will get you by. Yep. Um, so I always tend to find that that's the one outfit that I will literally carry anywhere. It's your Swiss Army knife. That's the Swiss Army knife. That will take care of everything. One athletic outfit. Mm-hmm. So shorts, because, you know, you can wash your athletic clothes in the sink. Mm-hmm when it comes down to it yep. and you can slouch around in them. You know, if it's a pair of tracksuit pants, a pair of shorts and a t-shirt, you can sit around your hotel in them. You can go down to breakfast in them. You can work out in them. You can do whatever you like in them. You can run down the shops in them if you like. Again, Swiss army knife, but there's those two outfits would largely get you by. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you can still go to a laundrette and you know, if yeah. you need to, or you get them dry cleaned or whatever it happens to be. But um, those two outfits will largely get you by for a week. Um, I'm not saying wear the same outfit every day, um, but with a, with a couple of variations, you add a shirt, you add a pair of pants on that theme, mm-hmm. and those two styles of outfit will largely get you through just about anything you need. Yeah. Um, but as I said, it, it always comes down to, um, you know, it's interesting. I love traveling for work, but at the same time, when you're traveling for work, it, tie, it wears you out. Yeah. So you don't necessarily get to do the tourist things and have fun. So, you know, if you're traveling for two weeks into a foreign country, you might only get one or two days where you, you're genuinely up to it because you're working in the hotel or you know, you're know you overburdened by restaurant meals or something like that and, and you, it starts to wear you down mm-hmm. and make you feel tired or make you feel... you know Sometimes you just want to sit at the hotel, order room service and go to sleep early or watch a movie or read a book or something like that. But it's, it's something that um, gets you back on schedule, especially if you're traveling internationally. Um, it's the way that you can almost make your life routine the way it was at home, but in a foreign environment. So if it's... Um, getting a certain type of meal, taking a walk, getting a workout, going back, reading for a couple of hours and falling into bed, then it's something that, that makes it very routine. Um, and that can sort of, um, that sort of makes the travel a little more bearable. Now, Code is the one who's, who's going to have like this down to a science because he does it I, on a level I can't even begin to imagine. I was say, he's pretty good at it. I'm oh, yeah. 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 I got I to ask him because I, I could, I think if I, if I any, was ever to buy anything that was like, Travel dependent. I would probably just ask him for um, his power converters. They're always something I have in my bag. Yeah, a universal true. power converter. Yeah. Um, extra charging cords, guaranteed. You're going to lose one yeah. somewhere. Headphones, things like that. 
Oh my god, the 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 in-flight noise canceling headphones. I I I don't absolute I, must. I don't have a pair, but that's something I want because I I don't travel often, so I just put the Apple earbuds in, and all you can hear is just yeah. Or you like, can hear like no, the over the over the ears because yeah, the, like the, even the these ear, wouldn't work. No, no, the earbuds. Yeah, get, you're talking like um, the Bose, like like right over the top of the ears, yeah. noise canceling, and they're going to cost you an absolute fortune. Totally but if worth you it. travel. You know, yeah, like it's a noticeable difference when you get off the plane. Like, don't even yeah. get me wrong. Like. Um, feel more rested oh absolutely yeah absolutely guaranteed gotta have part of me i wanted it just just for the occasional like once every two three years i take like a big trip that i'd actually need them but i think they would still i I think i would still warrant the amount of money i spent on them to to have them yeah you know i always thought i should be able to write them off on tax i'm not i'm not sure that's 100 percent legal so i've never actually done it but you know i would call it work equipment and say i absolutely oh my line of work i definitely would i don't know i don't know how you guys are there but that's that would definitely i'd constitute as a but again it's about the more you can normalize travel, the better. Mm-hmm. And that's the tricky part. So, you know, I found, you know, FaceTiming my kids and, and Skyping with the family was always important to me because it somehow normalized what I was doing. And it wasn't such a foreign environment. Um, it was getting to know, you know, local places where you weren't, you didn't feel like you were in a formal restaurant or something like that. You just sit down and socialize, maybe with the people you worked with. Um, or maybe it was just, um, so I was, again, out in France with Eurocopter and I turned the GPS off in the car and just started driving and ended up um, somewhere north of Arles in the south of France at a wine and cheese festival at some chateau. Um, didn't understand the language. Um, you know, could barely, I mean, I could limp around a little bit, but had no idea what I was doing. And I'd had this long-standing argument with a French friend of mine over wine and cheese. And, and I could, you know, back and forward on the wine, but the cheese was always like, it's cheese. I mean, how, how you know, how different can it be? And like, I'm sitting there like three drinks in texting this uh, friend of mine, like, all right, I get it now. All right. I, I fully understand what you were talking about when it came to finding quality cheese. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was always those snapshots and those little, you know, the, those two hours here or that, that thing there, it was getting stuck in London overnight, but that meant I got to go to an Eric Clapton, uh, Eric Clapton concert. Well, there you go. Um, or something like that, that, that made those trips somehow memorable, but at the same time, they're still work. My, my, uh, my, my favorite, this is, I mean, it's, it kind of ties into that. My f- my favorite moments or some of my most memorable moments were the the unplanned like absolutely like when i when i and i think anybody i don't think anybody would argue this like if you have one of those where like maybe you set a vacation and you're like so pumped so pumped so pumped you build it up to the point where it's going to be a letdown at some point in time because you've built it up to this big this big event that's going to happen some of the best ones are just like spur of the moment like oh why don't we just get tickets we'll go up to the concert next thing you know you have the time of your life because I was just going to stay at home tonight and instead we're doing something way cooler. I had no expectations for tonight and the bar was set so low that just doing this cool thing raised it. And I found, I absolutely love those moments where if you were to tell me like at the end of this podcast, Hey, um, I actually got con- tickets tomorrow night to go up to the bell center to watch whomever. I've been yep. like, yeah, hell yeah, let's go. Like, but it would be cool because I, I wasn't planning on it for months on end. It was just something that it just happened and I had a blast. And I think that's, traveling like you said i don't know i mean i haven't I haven't got this swing by any eric clapton concerts on <laughs> you know on the layover no, but that I, was just pure luck i mean it was, <laughs> we, we literally walked in and, and said what what standby tickets have you got available and this this woman handed us the tickets and said uh, hey this is what i've got and we went that and then the rest was history i mean it was um you know it, it's one of those things like uh exactly as you say those unplanned events those things that you say all right just get in the car 15 minutes we'll go somewhere and we'll see what happens at the end of yeah it. Um, and maybe you, I, I kid you not, getting into rugby 
um, over in the US was literally nothing more than my wife sitting there one day and going, we're going to Burlington today. Okay, great. What do we plan? What have we got planned? And she's like, nothing. We're going to just go over there and have a good time. And we're driving past UVM and there was a rugby game on the right-hand side. As you, oh, as yeah, you come yeah. off, and we are, yeah. Yeah, there's a rugby pitch as you get off and she's like, let's, let's go watch some rugby. I'm like, sure, why not? So get out of the car, stroll over there. I got chatting to the ref. The next thing you know, I've been inducted into the New England Referee Society and I'm, I'm off to the races. I mean, it, wow. it was just something as simple as that. Um, and I'm, I'm forever grateful she dragged me out of the house that day because I was ready to sit at home and do nothing. And she's That's like, so no, funny. we're going out. That's funny. Um, so you're probably, to be honest, you're probably one of the only guys in the U.S. that knew the rules. So like, we actually, okay, we're limited right here. We got, we got to get this guy. Yeah, he, at least, no, at least like, the accent sounds like he knows what he's talking about. You, you got to understand, like, um, the, the U.S. rugby sevens team, like sevens is a shortened, like, faster form of of. Uh, so there the, is the a sevens. Name. Yeah, there is a sevens and there's a fifteens. And sevens is, you know, it's fast, it's quick, and and God, if you don't have your cardio up, you're gonna die. Mm-hmm. Um, but and that's what they play down at. Uh, at, at Saranac Lake here at the Can-Am tournament. Gotcha. Um, but the American Rugby Sevens team is actually amazing. Um, they've got some guys the, like... The um, national team? Yeah, the national team. Okay. They've got guys like Carlin Isles and, uh, you know, these guys who are just, you know, guys who used to play wide receiver or something like that. So you put them in space and they are gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, speed for days and just just quick vision and you give them space on the outside and they'll just run around everybody. And they've got the space to do that in sevens, but they wouldn't necessarily have it in fifteens. Mm-hmm. Um, so the American, oddly enough, the American sevens rugby team is actually really good. Um, and so, you know, I think they've won a couple of world cup tournaments now. It's really like, or, or the world sevens, like they've, they've got the circuit and I think they've won a few tournaments now. Um, but that's just a, a, you know, a weird aside, but as you say, like coming back to this, this concept of travel, it's, it's sometimes the, the most unexpected events. It's, um, you know, sitting in a coffee shop in, in the middle of nowhere, chatting with a bunch of people you happen to meet. And, and this is why people go backpacking or, or this is why people yeah. travel. Yep. Um, so I always encourage, like I say to everybody, I don't care where you go, go out and experience it. Um, I got lucky enough uh, to go to China uh, at one point. And I remember work, you know, they said, oh, we're going out to the Western restaurant. Um, and we got out to the Western restaurant. And they said, look, they make the most amazing hamburgers. I'm like, oh, yeah, all right, let's do that. And so we got out there and um, everything was cooked in animal fat. So the burger, the buns, you could see this smear of animal oil on the outside. And it was the most, I got through halfway, halfway through the burger and called time out. I'm like, I, I felt so nauseous and sick because it wasn't canola oil. It wasn't like coconut, you know, any of the yeah, things I was yep. used to. And I couldn't stomach it. But the next night, um, one of the guys was like, oh, I'm just going to go out and eat at this restaurant with my family. I'm like, yeah, let's do that. And we, we sat Chinese style and family dining and ate a bunch of stuff. And it was one of the best meals I've ever had in my life. Um, so I often find that, uh, you know, you've just got to get out and experience it and you've got to see what comes up. Um, and they're some of the best, the best things that ever happen. Um, and, and like I said, it's, uh, you know, it changes when you've got kids or it changes when you get married or something like that. But those experiences are still there. So I think uh, I said to my boys one day, um, all right, guys, road trip. You've got 15 minutes to be in the car. So they threw a bunch of bags together and on 15 minutes notice. We went to Washington. Just for really? to do. <laughs> DC? Yeah. From up to, here? Yeah. Uh-huh. I had to get my passport did you t- did you renewed and stuff like did that. You tell oh, your yeah. wife? I okay. called my wife and said, hey, we're going. And she's like, well, all right, which, you know, which ones are you taking? I said, all of them. And she's like, oh. Okay, and she was stay back, stay, yeah. stood back here. Well, she had a, she had work to do, and she had a gallery opening and a bunch of other stuff. And and my wife is incredibly indulgent of my partial craziness every now and then. Um, so you drove down to DC. Yep. Spent how many? How much? Spent like three days there. Um, and just drove back with the kids. Uh, you know, we stopped in somewhere in Pennsylvania somewhere. That's um, cool. 
just because, hey, you know. We're and the kids something. had no clue where they were going. No, I said, we're going to Washington. And they were like, all right. <laughs> oh, okay. So they threw everything in a bag and, and we forgot a bunch of stuff and bought a, bought a bunch of stuff down there and found the hotel as we got there and, and all that kind of stuff and had a great time. That's cool. So, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I sometimes wonder if it's, if it's such a good idea, but it was, that was incredibly fun. You'll figure it out, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and sometimes it's, it's down to, oh, look, we're just going to start and see what happens. Yeah. And we'll figure it out. And if we don't make it there, we don't make it there. Like, you know, it's no big deal. But my, my son had, my son um, is very into, he, he, voracious reader, loves to read. Um, he's always talking about, you know, he reads the newspaper a lot. He's talking about current affairs a lot and things like that. So at the time you wanted to go see the Smithsonian. I'm like, well, let's go see the Smithsonian. Away we go. Oddly enough, the next trip we took down there, which was with the whole family, suddenly we had my wife with us. Uh-huh. So of course the first stop was the National Art Gallery, which again is just, and again, it was a completely different experience. So the two trips had incredibly different perspectives. One was very detailed and well-planned and one was just on the fly. And they were both amazing, but for completely different reasons. Yeah. So sometimes you just got to, you know, just do it and see what happens. And it might, look, it might go pear-shaped. I've done it a couple of times where it, it just, sorry, is that an Australianism, by the way? I've never heard of it, but, all right, but, some, but it sounded like it should fit, so I thought it was good. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell Pear-shaped meaning bottom, bottom heavy, top knot? No, it just means it's bent out of shape. It starts oh, out okay. as a circle and now it's, now it's pear-shaped okay. and, and we don't know how it happened, but it went wrong. Uh, and sometimes things go wrong, but you still get something out of it. I mean, I've been rained out of camping trips and I've been, you know, uh, I've had everything go wrong before and you forget something, but you just pick up the pieces and... Yeah. somewhere make in, the best of it and as long as you can sort of you know laugh your way through that then you're fine um sorry when i when i start to get a little bit tired or when i get start talking about things australia occasionally these australianisms will come in and there's a there's a bunch of different ones that i use like um doing something quickly uh, i described it to one of the guys at work as going through it like a shark through a surfer and i i he just looked at me like i had two heads um <laughs> The really funny one is I'd, I'd just come back from a work trip, oddly enough, and I was sitting in front of the board, the CEO, and a bunch of the, the higher-ups at my company. And I'd been talking for about an hour and given them the presentation on what was going on. And the CEO has turned to me and said, do you think you can get it done? And I said, gee, boss, I'm not here to fuck spiders. And then I realized what I'd said in front of who I'd said it. And there was this moment of silence where I'm like, what have I done? <laughs> And he started laughing and then the whole board started laughing and it was great. And he never, he didn't, he didn't let me live that down. I swear to God for like two years, but you know, every time something came up like that, it's like, you know, something about fucking spiders or something like this. <laughs> and, and so there it was. Hey, so, we're in Australia, right? <laughs> so occasionally, you know, if, if I ever say something stupid like that, just warn me and I'll, I'll explain the, uh, the origins of the saying, but, uh, but yeah, but yeah, like I said, it's, it's, it took me a long time. I always thought I had life worked out when I was quite young. I always thought I knew where my life was going to go and I, I knew what the structure was going to be and I knew where it would take me. And very quickly you, wor- you work out that, no, it's not yeah. actually going to work like that and, and life is going to throw you some incredible curveballs and what you think is going to happen in 10 years, you might be on that path, it's going to look completely different. And I, I think if somebody had asked me when I joined the Navy that I was going to be living in upstate New York in 20 years, I would have, yeah, as I said before, I would have laughed. Yeah. But here I am and I love it. And I love what I'm doing and I love where life's taken me. Um, and, and so it's sometimes you just, you've just got to roll with it and see what happens and see where you can take it. Um, so, I, you know, I have an idea and every, every year in the lead up to New Year's, I don't write resolutions, but I write a goals list and I say, these are the things that I want to achieve this year or, or these are the, th-, you know, it might be a short term part of it or it might be a long term thing. And some of those goals will stay on the list for years. Mm-hmm. And I think I've been writing it for about 10 or 15 years now. 
Um, and some of those goals will stay on the list for two or three years before I actually get them done. And the list might, it might go beyond 10, it might get to 20, or, or, but I'm always trying to nail these things down. And, and some of them are very small. Um, you know, some of them might be as simple as, you know, take my son to his first ever baseball game. Mm-hmm. I got that one done. Um, but something, you know, it might be something much bigger than that. It, you know, it might be something, you know, much broader in terms of, and some of them, some of the ones I don't even know how I'm going to achieve them when I first start looking at it, but I figure I'll get there eventually. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like kicking the can down the road. You'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. I think in a way, I, I think in a way you've got to take on, you've got to take on those challenges. Right. Well, I mean, what, what was the, uh, the quote, uh, you can read it. I can't see it from here. It's uh, on there somewhere. Unless you just said it because you knew it. Which one? The, the rising skill, tide the, raises all boats. No? Oh no 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 the uh, the the rough tide or rough sea <laughs> or a calm sea doesn't make a good sailor right. That's another navy one. Yeah, I, I'm certain that is. Um, and having again, I, having I the thrown quote. up over the side of many a navy vessel on a on a rough day. Um, uh, <laughs> wave induced or alcohol induced. We'll say that for let's, another let's podcast. Say, yeah, yeah, definitely say that one for another um, podcast. So. We'll we'll end there. It's getting late. I I forgot that uh, we had the daylight saving time. So we're actually, I of course did not notice my clock was off all day long, but um, (laughs) that's just how things, things flow. We just go with it. So uh, I want to thank Mr. Craig DeBoose for uh, swinging by on your first podcast. Absolutely. It it was fascinating and I really enjoyed it. Good. So uh, he's been an avid, I think an avid listener. I think he's listened to quite a few of these and because I, I I know he's a, He's reached out to me a few times, but like most guests on the podcast, it's people who I like talking to. So I always, I always get a good conversation going with, with Craig. So I, I appreciate him coming on. Um, if you, like I said, I, I don't know if, if you have any way for people to reach you or anything that you can help people out with, but obviously a quality uh, assurance or, or anything like yeah. that. But I think if it came down to it, if, uh, if you ever needed to find me, Galen knows how to get hold of me. That's so. it. Per- sounds good. So again, I want to thank Craig. Uh, that is episode 17 of the Galen Trombley Show. We're out. Thanks for listening to the Galen Trombley Show. If you want to reach me, you can go on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. The spelling, G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y.